And so we ask ourselves, will our actions echo across the centuries? All right, Graham, welcome back. Just us two this time. Um, if you haven't listened to him before, uh, you've got how big's your homestead again? 290 acres. Yeah. To be so, exact. Quite, yeah, quite a bit. Um, we, this is our third episode now. So, um, yeah, we, we've gotten quite a few questions. Uh, you know, between all the episodes. The second one was basically answering questions people had after the first one. And this one's going to be just kind of continuing those those questions. So uh, so there actually was one in here that I did like. I think that it was... Uh, oh, let me find it. Yeah, yeah. He said the, the most important question, how's the family? Uh, the family's doing great. Um you know, now that I've, you know, finally gotten away from the caveman traditions and have electricity and running water, uh, the wife's definitely happy. And uh, I now have Twitter. three children. So I definitely, well, actually I have five children with another another one on the way. So, uh, you know, it's just the uh, Roman Catholic coming out, I guess. Uh, it's Roman Catholic <laughs> stereotype, you know. I, I will admit yeah, the uh, small town that I'm in, um, has a Roman Catholic church that was built in 1866. It's one of the few in, for those who don't know, I live in Maryland and Appalachia, the Allegheny Mountains run through a small section of the state, the entire western tip of the state. And uh, there's only about three or four Catholic churches. And I was looking off the town I picked by random when I bought my property, uh, actually had a Catholic church in it. So, you know, it's you know it's nice to continue that tradition with my family. And uh, my wife was raised protestant but uh she actually decided that we should raise the family roman catholic and it's nice to kind of pass that on to the children yeah definitely yeah we um so my my wife and i we we checked out a, an eastern catholic church um last weekend and we when, when we went to leave like uh it was it was super small and all these people knew that we were obviously not not from there and stuff and and it was a little delayed starting up so most of us were kind of hanging out outside of you know like the actual uh like the chapel portion and uh you know they're just asking us and they're like oh like you know are, are you guys catholic whatnot we're like yeah yeah and um but yeah anyway afterward we were we were talking to them again and they were saying that hearing the sounds of of kids making noises and just like you know, crying and, and stuff like that. Like as we're, you know, for us, it's like, a. am sure, you know, it's like kind of stressful. Like you're sitting there trying to wrangle your kids and they just exactly. don't understand the concept of being quiet. So it's like, you know, they decided that very moment that they want something and they're just going to yell until they get it or something when they're not normally like that. It's, it's weird. But um, yeah, we, they were, they were saying like, it's, it's kind of nice to hear the sound of it because it lets you know that, you know, the church is still growing and, and that there's still, you know, people with young families and stuff like that bringing their kids along. But yeah, so no, it's definitely, definitely uh, nice that the town, because we were talking about the town in the first episode and it was like tiny, 
like oh, there's there only like a couple hundred people that live there at most or no it was like 60 yeah. or something yeah well the, yeah, the census is 60 the local high school i think uh the graduating class last year that um was i believe was like 53 um and that's you know that, that high school services a bunch of other small towns around so yeah it's a very small town and uh you know when i bought when i bought the property because for those who don't know um bought the accent i'm australian from tasmania and after i got out of the service over in australia i came to america first stop was california it's a fucking shithole i wouldn't <laughs> recommend it to anyone i went to tennessee with a buddy of mine and i was a forest worker and uh he had actually decided he was going to move to pennsylvania to his family and i decided that uh tennessee just wasn't the spot for me and um I had blindly bought property, which I do not recommend. For those who haven't bought property yet, do not blind, blindly buy it. I, I went in, just blindly bought property, just kind of laid out a big old fat stack on it. And uh, I'm lucky that the town I chose, it's a small, tight-knit town. Everyone knows everyone. Um, you know, I was lucky it had a Catholic church. I didn't know that going in. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's a good place to raise the children. It's a good place to teach them, you know, right and wrong. It's not like I'm raising them in the middle of some inner city somewhere. So, and I get to teach them the lifestyle I grew up on in Tasmania. So it's nice to pass that tradition down. Yeah. And that's like, I think that that's one of the most attractive things to most people with, with the idea of homesteading and all that is just that, you know, you can, you can kind of continue a lot of those traditions and, and stay, um, you know, self-sustaining and, and all that, right? Like, you know, even for me, like we were looking for a house that had um, septic and a well, and we ended up being on sewer and city water, right? Like we still live in a small town, um, yeah. but those, it's just those two additional things that we still have to rely on others for ultimately. Exactly. So now that is nice. Um, there was a question. Here's a good one. Um, ever seen two small cryptids team up and step inside of a trench coat together oh matter of fact uh in afghanistan there were two very small men we'll consider them cryptids <laughs> and uh they got as far as the perimeter they got as far as the perimeter before a uh a uh, young lad from victoria uh, got on a gpmg and made two cryptids into a pile so yes i've seen two cryptids <laughs> sneak up in a vest uh it was not so much a vest as it was um bushes that they had roped around themselves i guess they had watched hannah barbara and realized that it might work it did not and uh, we have in the western world there's this thing called uh thermal imaging it's it's really great system that they just didn't fathom and uh those two cryptids uh went to the crypt so yeah i've seen two cryptids in a pseudo trench coat <laughs> that's funny yeah that's and thermal um that actually i think that somebody had asked uh a question like that oh well here's one that somebody asked like oh, okay yeah somebody did say night vision slash thermal applications and and i know that we had talked um i think actually on the first one about night vision and you were saying how useful it is and all that but um i guess do you have do you have a thermal or or something like that or do you have like trail cams that can oh yeah so I, yeah i do have uh certain um you know uh night vision and thermal i actually do own a uh, pvs 14 uh, monocular um 
I have a couple of thermal, not really like a gun scope, kind of like a handheld scope. I do have trail cameras set up on uh, like the property boundaries. And uh, where my property does come down, there's a public trail. In my area, there's this canal called the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. And there's a public hiking trail. So I do keep trail cameras around there to monitor if people are crossing over to my property just to, you know, make sure I'm not having, you know, 290 acres. I can't be everywhere at once. So I do have a lot of uh, trail cameras that, upon sensing lack of daylight, they switch over to IR and then they switch back to uh, colored imaging during the daytime. I do have plenty of those and they are very helpful. I mean, you figure, especially if you have livestock uh, in my area, we have coyotes, we have um, mountain lion, depending on where you're in the United States, it's either called a puma, a cougar, or a mountain lion. We have the mountain lions here and we have black bears. So uh, monitoring predators, especially nocturnal ones with IR, you can definitely give a, get a trace of what's going after your livestock. Um, I've had countless nights where I've had a, a, a black bear try uh, digging at the side of the chicken coop, like actually scratching the wooden sides. And uh, I've had some instances where I've had a mountain lion try and get in the goat pen and try and kill a goat. And, um, you know, with the IR imaging, you can tell what it was in the night. For example, if I run out to the goat pen because I hear them abnormally wailing at the crack of dawn and I run out there with a rifle, of course, that whatever as predators trying to attack them is going to run away because it doesn't know what I am. Well, I didn't know what it was because it's just a streak moving in the dark and uh, I'm uh, getting older, so I'm not going to be able to see exactly what it was. And uh, it's nice to check the eye imaging to see what it what it was. Like, for example, uh, a couple months ago, I had the exact of a coyote try and get into the goat pen and they managed to jump the fence and get in. Now the goats, you know, being larger animals, were able to defend themselves. And uh, I was able to check the IR imaging to know it was a coyote. And the next night I laid a little trap for him and uh, good night, Ness. So yeah. it definitely is valuable. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think that, I think that a lot of people too get kind of like, and I think that we had talked about this too on the, on the first one, but you know, people would kind of get this idea like, Oh, you know, night vision is just an accessory for, for guys who, um, you know, CQB classes, stuff like that. Like it's kind of gotten a weird association with guys that are kind of falling for like all the hype stuff online versus guys that are actually going out and doing stuff. But it's like, it gets night or it gets dark every single night. Hey, you know, every single day, you know, it's going to get dark out um, unless you live in some certain spots in the world in certain times of the year. But, um, you know, it's it's guaranteed and the predators and stuff like that aren't going to stop at night. Most of them are more active at night. So it's just just good to have, I would say. But, um, yeah, there was something else, too, that was somebody had asked if you do um, like what what kind of security you set up? Like, do you do patrolling stuff or, or like what's your kind of like main way to secure everything? Cause like you had said too, you can't be everywhere at once on, on 290 acres. Yeah. So, uh, part of my security, at least, you know, livestock security is, you know, the main importance because that's your lifeline for milk, you know, dairy, eggs and meat, if it comes down to it. And, uh, you know, it's all about, uh, knowing what predators in your area which i think i talked about in the first podcast if you buy land in an area get to know what local wildlife is and that way you know what you're up against uh for example for my chicken coop i bury the wire under the ground that way if they try and dig 
they're just going to be met with more wire and eventually the animal will give up because they're expending more energy than they're going to gain. Mm-hmm. Um, over top of fencing, I like to put up tall fencing. Obviously, it doesn't keep everything out. Um, I haven't electrified anything. I haven't used any um, barbed wire. haven't used anything like that. I do keep the trail cameras up. I uh, During trapping season, I'll run a trap line out and try and trap as many of the uh, possum and raccoons as possible because they the raccoons will damage crops and the possums will actually... I don't know if anybody knows this, but they actually will kill uh, chickens. Um, local fella actually had one where he was opening up the door every morning to get eggs and finding his chickens with their heads missing. Hmm. And put a camera in there and found a possum coming down, taking the head and leaving. Um, but yeah, like I said, I keep a trap line out in the in the trapping season, try and get as many little you know, foxes and raccoons and possums as possible. I'll run trail cameras on, throughout various uh, known walkable trails on my property and uh, I keep the livestock fenced in. I keep the main easement coming into my property is very, very uh, um, lit up with trail cameras and uh, I'll keep a, you know, a gate on my easement to the, I guess you'd say, I wouldn't say the main state road, but the main road for the local area. And uh, other than that, I do patrol. I'll have a little uh, Honda three wheel that I ride around on like a, uh, Andre the Giant, <laughs> and I will uh, check various parts of my homestead, you know, the, the main house, the livestock, the crops. I'll check, uh, you know, my shack racky, my canoes, uh, my tool shed, my garage, things like that. And uh, then I'll check up the main drive before I'll go to sleep, make sure no one's coming down it, make sure no one's trying to, you know, do anything. And then I... Uh, Call the night. I mean, my thing is, you'd, you'd have to, you know, 100% where my, on 290 acres, you'd have to know where my exact house is on the homestead. And, you know, this is the 21st century, so each trail cam will give me an alert when uh, something is detected. So, uh, basically, you'll be like a Bigfoot or one of those phony videos from the 70s. You'll be on every single camera before you get to me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, at the worst case scenario, if you do cause come to cause harm you'll be on every single trail camera before you in a gun scope so uh you know i, I do try and do like a, a dawn and dusk ride around um i definitely try to check for uh um carrion so any type of dead carcass of a deer i tend to see if it's been poached or if it's been killed by a bear um i've had recent accounts of poaching here lately and uh not particularly happy with that and I've had a lot of black bear killings of deer and fawns, but I've, you know, I make sure that tries to stay as far away as possible from my livestock. I've had a few bear come close to the home, so they've been pretty brave, but a lot of them are young in the area and they, try, they tend to stay away. So as long as they stay off. So I do try to monitor, you know, uh, the dead animals. Also in my area, another wildlife security I measure I take is uh, in my area, in the state of Maryland, there's this disease for uh, white-tailed deer called chronic wasting disease. And uh, people also call them zombie deer. They basically dehydrate to a point where their, their tongue swells up. They can't get water. They, they act erratic, almost like a rabid animal, but without, you know, rabies. And I try to look for signs of any animal possessing that, which I try and euthanize and get rid of. I don't want that spreading to anything on my uh, homestead. But for the most part, I just do, you know, ride around and check the trail cameras and kind of just leave it to an automated security. 
So yeah, yeah. Have you um, like how how often would you say that people kind of wander onto your land? That like, have you ever interacted with somebody who just wandered on, whether they knew it or not? Oh yeah, I've interacted with uh with hunters. Um, not botting up to my property, but nearby there is a state management zone, and people hunt there in the hunting seasons. And I'm probably about seven and a half miles from it. But there are some people who just walk through the woods. <laughs> you know, there's some new hunters out there who just get, you know, they have a rifle camouflage in the woods and they just walk all over it, you know, and sometimes I end up on my property. I've had one guy walk the entire seven and a half miles. Um, I've had huh. hikers come off the main trail and they'll set up camp, start a fire on my property. And I mean, usually as long as they don't leave any trace of them being there, if they take all their trash with them, put out their fire, I'm okay with it. Uh, the only people I'm not okay with is when they try to set up a fucking granola. What do they call them? Uh, I think they call them like granola girls when they, they bring in the blaze orange tents and the Patagonia jackets and the MREs. That That's something I don't really approve of. But uh, yeah. I've had a couple people come in and set up like two-piece poncho tents, and I'm okay with that. I've had guys just like – I had a group of guys about, uh, about two months ago, I guess, come in, and they set up hammocks in the trees, and I didn't care. They were, they were gone, and you couldn't even tell they were there. I mean, they even – rake the leaves back over where they were set up their fire and everything you know you wouldn't even know they were there see so, what you uh, need to do uh, next time that that they come in and and set up for the night mm-hmm. is go out there and uh take pictures of them with their own phones and then just leave and not do anything so that way when they're looking at all the pictures from their trip they just see all these pictures of them sleeping <laughs> there was actually one guy i had uh he was he was a pretty young guy and there was he was a believe he was like a youth pastor for some uh church it was like boy scouts but for like a church it was their mm-hmm. own version of like uh, protestant boy scouts i guess and uh they had wandered off the trail and it was pretty late at night and i had been down i because i also owned property on the other side of the north branch of potomac river in west virginia and i you know take a, I, I have canoes i just do across the potomac river and instead of having to drive across the next local bridge 12 miles away just cross it with a fucking canoe it's the same thing just like george and, washington uh, did oh yeah it's like uh fucking less than the mohicans <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so these these guys had they had missed the campground and there was another campground for like a kilometer and they were you could tell these kids were just worn out and i said you go ahead up there there's a, a flat spot dry ground up there because it, it was starting to rain that night and you know you don't don't want to you know, sit on a decline while it's raining. I said, there's a nice dry flat spot up there. And I took them up to it, told me you can set up camp here. And uh, that night he had, uh, I'd given him my phone number in case he had any issues. And he had called me that night and was asking me if I had any livestock out. Apparently a neighbor's pig had gotten out. So I had gone down there to wrestle a pig. And when I was there, he was asking me questions. He was pretty, uh, actually, uh, I guess you could say he was inquiring about the homestead. And I had, uh, realized that he was kind of a skittish younger fella probably maybe in his late 20s and i decided to throw a ghost story on him of iroquois indians in the area who had haunted the area and all this <laughs> nonsense and uh scared the devil out of him but uh yeah other than that i mean i've had some interactions with a lot it's a lot of hikers to be honest a lot of hikers not a lot of hunters i've only had a few negative uh, interactions with like I said, the last time when I had that logging crew come through and fell a tree on top of my pickup truck, I've, I've had negative yeah. interactions with that. I've had a lot of negative interactions with poachers, but uh, a lot of positive ones, mostly positive interactions with people who just kind of wander over because they just think it's just the wood side. I don't think anybody owns it. And, uh, you know, not a lot of negative inter- interactions, to be honest. 
Yeah, yeah, that's not not too bad, but that's funny you gave him the ghost story. Um, somebody did, uh, did they did ask like marital homesteading, like like they said little ways to make the wife and kids happy living with less. Yeah, so that was that was my big thing. So when I first started my homestead, I was I wanted to go for peak caveman. I wanted, you know, I wanted to live like, uh, like they did when the Americans first crossed the frontier. So when, you know, if you go back in early American history, you have the people who said the pioneer cabins, uh, Daniel Boone, Boonesboro, things like that. I wanted to live like that. I wanted to live, go back in time, live in a wooden log cabin, chinked walls and just kind of live by the candlelight. And then, uh, caveman met woman and that all went out the window <laughs> and, uh, she wanted electricity, running water, basic amenities, you know, and as a man, you know, we can honestly live more caveman than a woman can. So uh, I broke down and, um, you know, electricity, there's literally no electricity in my area. Everybody who has it, um, it's very unreliable. On a very hot day, you'll have no power because the, the line's just overloaded with heat. So I went with solar, put my own solar panels and uh, got the running water. She wanted internet. That was the last. That was one of the last draws. I didn't want internet. She wanted internet. So, I uh, we went up going with that Starlink, and uh, it's been pretty mm-hmm. good. It's been pretty good. Uh, I wasn't at too uh, wanting to go with it at first, but uh, it, it was pretty good. So I mean, yeah, like I said, marital living is one of those things where it's like a two way street. You know, you have to make compromises, a lot of compromises, many compromises, in uh, <laughs> especially if you have if you have a. Uh, if you have kids you know if you have kids you got to take care of them and you know one of the things originally me and my wife we wanted to homeschool our children we wanted to keep our kids homeschooled but the thing is in our area we don't have to worry about the the nonsense going on in the western world today uh, everybody is pretty much roman catholic like i said very old timey it's almost like you, you take yourself back to the 1940s for the most part so we decided, you know, we're going to let them have a you know normal life, go to a public school like we did. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's always with marital, especially when you have children. It's There's a lot of things you're going to come across, especially in homesteading when you're off grid. It's one thing if you're like a suburban homesteader where you just like you know, everybody around you has a typical house. Then you have a greenhouse and things in the back that make people uh, a little concerned of you. If you've you know, got bags of fertilizer and an Irish accent, uh, <laughs> you know. But if you're off-grid homesteading, there's a lot of things that you have to do. Uh, I know, like, so for example, my wife, she was a school teacher. The only reason I met her is because I was working in the uh, forest department for the state of Maryland at the time. And she had a, uh, like a, a naturalist class she was teaching. She was a school teacher. She didn't really know much about anything modern. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, like survival and without modern technology. She knew nothing. So I had to work from the ground up to teach her, you know, the most basic things like how to tie a knot. She didn't know how to tie a knot in rope to keep things from, you know, the knot coming apart. It was just basic things, you know, and there's, there's a lot of things people don't know. Um, you know, a lot of people and it's a good cultural thing in America, too, with a lot of things people don't know that other nations might know. So I'm sure like, you know, if, if there's Canadians watching this podcast, you know, I'm sure most Canadian women, especially in like Alberta, Saskatchewan, things like that, Manitoba know the same things men do and i know in a lot of places in america it's going to be different so if you have a spouse you need to work with them 
start the building block foundation for homesteading, teach them the same things, you know, um, you know, it's one thing to stick to the, the typical social norms. You know, my wife, wife likes to take care of the kids and do the cooking and the cleaning. And I like to do the cooking too, but there's certain things that, you know, if I'm away, she needs to know how to run the tractor or how to, you know, get the livestock back in the pen, how to feed them, how to take care of them. If there's an emergency with the livestock, how to deal with it, you know, harvest the crops, the proper way to harvest them. That's things you need to pass on to your spouse and your kids. So, uh, yeah, this is two-way street, and you just got to start slow, and eventually you'll work yourself up to a uh, good starting point, and from there, things usually naturally take their course. Yeah. No, that's uh, – well, you know, and you said, too, that you have electricity now and, and all that stuff, so I guess that's that's one way where, <laughs> you know, she says that it's it's – uh, you need to modernize a bit more. Just be like, look, I got uh, electricity for you. What more do you need? Exactly. Like this is running water and electricity. The television's a no. It's only radio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one thing too for us. This is like, I wish that we had, uh, it would be sweet to just like completely get rid of the TV, but we don't. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, it's not um, nonsense. Yeah, well, I mean, like, we don't have cable. Um, we use, oh, yeah, like, yeah, this is why we watch, uh, we'll watch TV, like, once, once we go to sleep. We're, we're watching MASH right now, like, going through the whole, the whole series of MASH and watching, you know, an episode or two whenever we can. And then, uh, you know, the only time that we ever put on anything for our, our daughter is, like, if, if um, we, like, actually really need to get something done. And we got to kind of, because she gets into everything. And so we got to kind of like occupy her. And the only thing that we really put on is Little Bear, which is a TV show that I used to watch when I was a kid. But it's very like, uh, you know, there's not really like, you know, all that modern nonsense in there. And it's very slow paced and the, the colors aren't super vibrant or anything. So it's not going to give her like, you know, crazy mental stimulation to just go hog wild forever. And we'll, we'll limit it too. So like set a timer for you know, like 20 minutes because generally the the episodes are like 30 minutes long set a timer for like 20 minutes go ahead and get what we need done real quick and then turn the tv back off oh yeah but yeah radio would be a lot cooler yeah i know like in my area there's there's literally like no cable so everybody has like uh like whatever local network is around and you know we just have the antennas so you get the public television and the, the public stations but uh now that my wife wanted the internet, she has my children uh, watching a show called Bluey. Yep. And, uh, oh, my God. You know, luckily, they don't get all uh, into it. Uh, my oldest, he's uh, five years old, and uh, he'll he'll watch the Andy Griffith show over <laughs> and over and over. And, you know, you know, Andy Griffith show, in my opinion, teaches pretty good values. So, you know, but there's, there's a lot of uh, garbage programming out there that I just – you know, try to keep the, the kids away from and a lot of stuff on the internet they just don't need to see. So, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, kind of back to the homesteading portion. So there's a couple of people that had asked these questions uh, kind of a similar way. Um, what system, like basically they want you to go a little bit more into how you set up your poultry auto feeder. 
Um, because this guy said that he's he's getting tired of walking out every few days to feed them. Somebody else had asked how you how you feed your livestock when you go away for two weeks, but I think that you had already answered that with like the auto feeder. Yeah, so so the auto feed I have is like a it's like a big hopper system and it's well ventilated to make sure it doesn't mold. Because I feed them with corn and one thing about corn and the moisture gets in, it will mold. So uh, it's basically like a hopper, and I have uh on these like big hanging racks i have four of these large uh feeding they're like a big hanging feeder it's the best way i can struggle with the dish on the bottom and uh the uh corn will slowly move down the hopper and land in the feeder and it's it's suspended by a weight so whenever they eat enough and the weight raises up it'll actually pull up it'll let a flap come up and let corn fall down into the uh hanging feeder so that way, as long as I stock it with corn, as long as there's corn in the trough, it will fall down. Now, I'm sure if I'm going long enough and there's no corn in the trough, then you know, they'll eventually starve. But uh, it's basically just a big trough. It's uh, made out of um, tin inside of a wood trough. And then it just the corn, I dump it in there, open up a couple of hatches and fill the separate troughs. And it just works as a hopper. It's got a big hopper that comes down with a plate inside and the, the weight of the heavy uh hanging feeder pulls that plate shut so it doesn't just dump all the corn into the uh chicken coop and then as it uh gets um lighter in weight it slowly allows that plate to come back up and more corn will come down into the hanging feeder and then as soon as that weight gets back in it will draw it back down and uh close off the corn from coming down because thing is with chickens if you were to dump all that corn they will sit there and gorge themselves on it and then they'll starve so you have to feed them in you know moderation and as for uh the goats that i have they they'll they'll free feed so i have a pretty large area penned in just for them so even if i was gone for two weeks and they ran out of magically ran out of all their feed and hay they were just grazing all the grass and the the weeds that are in their large enclosure so uh, I'd be confident in uh, in their survival, um, but that's how the auto feeder works. Like I said, it's just uh, a wooden trough with tin lining. That way, the the corn can slide freely because you know you don't want a lot of friction. So I have a tin lining, and then um, just a plate, just a weighted plate. And as soon as that hanging basket gets full, it closes, it pulls down, dragging that plate down to close off the trough. And then as soon as the weight gets taken away, the corn comes down. It fills the hanging feeder. And for water, I have uh, just plastic 55-gallon drums, you know, the big uh, ones like, you know, like things like uh, water and food come in, those big storage drums, the big blue plastic ones. And I have mm-hmm. a uh, uh, the lid chopped off in a ring, like a metal barrel ring that holds it on, and a trough that comes down with a PVC pipe sticking out of it. So... The water will come down, fill the trough, and then when the water level gets high enough, it'll press a level and will close the PVC pipe off. And when the water level drops down, more water comes out. And on very hot days, I'll have a breather pipe put in it, angled down. It's a rubber hose just in a hole with some uh, silicon sealant to keep it from, you know, outside contaminants getting in. And uh, it's pointed down, so that way nothing gets down the breather pipe, and that way it can ventilate that way it doesn't because what happens is in the heat that barrel actually suck in on itself and it'll cause a vacuum and will allow no water to come out so you got to make sure you can get air out ventilate the barrel if not 
water tank's going to seal in on itself and will any uh, won't allow any water to come out. So that's my auto water works, and I just you know feed that off of rainwater. It's got a rainwater catch on top, and I can take a put a hose in it and put well water into it. But uh, it's got a rainwater catch on top as well, and uh, the water lasts pretty long. I have four of them set up, and four feeders, four waterers, and it lasts pretty long. Um, I can leave it unattended for about two months as long as there's not any damages to the system. I can leave it unattended for two months, and it will confidently feed them. I stock it pretty pretty well. And like I said, the goats, they uh, they just kind of free roam and they free graze anyway. Even when I feed them, they usually try and eat the grass before they even eat their own feed. So, and then, you know, all my other poultry, like, you know, quail and things like that, they're all fed the same way as the chickens are. But that's how the system works, yeah. So is something like that, like where you say that, you know, on the hot days, the, the barrel will create a vacuum, whatnot. Like, how... Is that all stuff that you've kind of figured out on your own, or were you doing research? Oh, no, no. I figured that out on my own when my, uh, I have ducks and chickens, and they were screaming at me because they had no water. And I was thinking, oh, they should have plenty of water. And then I saw the barrel was completely – it had like an hourglass shape. It was mm. so sucked in. The, the sides were almost touching each other, and it actually blown the lid off the top. <laughs> yeah, it was – yeah, it was bad. All the water was basically out of the barrel, and it was sucked in on itself. I had to take a, a four-pound mole and beat the sides back out. That was so sucked in on itself. <laughs> so it was a, it was a lesson learned. Yeah. It's the same for anything with a breather tube. Even your car's axle will have a breathing. If you have a solid axle with a differential, it will have a breathing tube on it as well to keep the same thing from happening. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense then how you kind of can associate the two things and come up with a decent solution for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one thing too that like I kind of like I I don't have I'm not very good with cars like I can if I hear a noise or feel something or whatever like I know that there's tons of people out there that can instantly pinpoint and know what it is and and all that and I'm just not super familiar with them so I do kind of feel disadvantaged in a lot of ways um, which is kind of funny too because growing up my dad was uh, he he used to be a mechanic like an auto mechanic before he started doing a lot of, you know, what he does now. So it was, uh, it was very, if he ever did need to work on the cars or anything like that, I would, uh, I would try to stay in on it, but I didn't really pick up a whole bunch. So now it's like, anytime there's an issue or something, I'd like to do it myself. But then at the same time with, you know, just the time that it takes. And then now we're down a vehicle and I still got to go to work and everything. It's kind of, yeah just more convenient to generally take it to a place to fix it where i can get a rental or whatever so yeah i mean even a better description than that is uh like a septic tank you're gonna have a vent pipe because you know all those gases from you know just solid waste in there yep. it produces certain gases that have to come out or else it will combust and explode the tank just from sheer pressure so you know you need some sort of vent to get that build up pressure out and uh that's basically you know basics of it is you just need a vent pipe to get the pressure out that way the, the tank can breathe and get you know that because if too much pressure builds up it'll actually cause the tank to suck in on itself uh sometimes i had one suck in on itself and i actually did have one like i said blow the top off so breather keeps it well ventilated keeps any type of uh building pressure gets it out of there and uh it's a one main thing you do not want to happen if you were to go away for two weeks if, if say if i was going away for two weeks and that would have happened i would have had uh chickens dying of thirst in the middle of the summer so yeah you know it's, it's good to find those i was lucky to find the thing up on myself at a decent time of the year when i was there 
compared to and there's a lot of things in homesteading i have found that for myself the very hard way <laughs> and uh hopefully others don't have to but my uh the barrel design you could probably find that online i'm sure there's plenty of other replications of it and uh if you subscribe to any magazines for homesteading uh there's a couple of them out there that kind of show you uh one's called the backwoods magazine and one's called self-reliance magazine that my wife subscribes to and they they show a lot of that stuff in there too if you anybody wants to check that out man you really are old school subscribing to magazines oh yeah my, i can't subscribe to hustler playboy anymore though <laughs> no it's funny um it's funny that you mentioned the you know the ventilation pipe like the stink pipe and stuff is that a couple of weeks ago uh i was helping out one of one of my buddies at church to uh he's doing an addition onto his house off the back so um he needed an extra set of hands to help put the rafters in for the for the roof and everything so i went there and, and you know we laid the boards and started putting the rafters across and and all that so i was on the the house side and then uh his his father-in-law was on the you know like the new wall side that they were that they had put up and then our friend he was cutting all the all the boards and so while we're doing this it's starting to get later and later in the day and so his wife starts cooking dinner and the kitchen is like right there so it smells pretty good and then the kitchen and the bathroom are next to each other so anyway i'm like going up the ladder smells good and i get to a certain point on the roof where then it just smells like absolute shit. and i didn't want to say anything because i didn't know if somebody had gone into the bathroom and just like decimated it and um and so then uh my buddy whose house it was was up there too and he he had mentioned something about it and he's like oh I thought that there was propane for a second, like when we were down on the ground and, and he said, now I'm up by the stink pipe and I know, I know that's what it is. And he was like, man, that does not smell good. And, um, we were talking about it and that's, that's how I learned what that was. Cause you know, to help let all the methane gas release and everything. So your house doesn't oh, yeah. blow up, but yeah. it was just funny. Cause like, you know, I'd be up on the roof, just trying not trying to be nice and, and not point out the fact that it smells like absolute shit up there and then i would be walking down the ladder and it would just go from shit to like you know baking bread and, and meat being cooked <laughs> and stuff yeah oh <laughs> uh, okay so one more thing i'm gonna add with the auto feeder that i didn't mention before the plate that is pulled down by the weight of the uh hanging basket is it's got a spring holding on to the, the reverse side so one the bottom side has the hanging basket and the top side has a spring that attaches to the roof and that spring allows it to go up and down with the corner in case anybody was wondering how it was able to go up and down with the weight. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's, that's good stuff too. I mean, how, how many of those uh, like designs and stuff did you just come up with on your own to fix an issue or how many of those did you see and, and implement? Oh, we actually had it on our uh, farm in Tasmania. It was actually my grandfather's uh, idea. And uh, he had it going on when he was over in uh, South Africa. Like I said, my grandfather was a bull over in South Africa, and uh, they had it over there. Um, his father had actually set it up. He was a big uh, landowner. He was pretty wealthy, so he could afford to tinker with things. So uh, it's just something passed down, but it's a pretty rudimentary design, pretty basic. I'm sure there's electric okay. versions now, but, you know, I like a good mechanical version. But I'm sure there's probably, if you Googled it, put it up on the internet, you'd probably find a thousand electric versions where you just plug it into a little outlet somewhere. But uh, I like a good mechanical version. No, no, I mean, that's 
probably going to be better and more robust and easier to fix anyway. Um, here's one where uh, asking, what are some tips for getting over the financial hurdle, the hurdle of purchasing land, USDA, FDA loans? Um, so I guess what, what's what's the best way to start doing that and, and then have money for you know the initial equipment and everything? So uh, the best way you can get started if you don't have any money, you know, you got to save up some money before you get started. Like I said, I advise if you can qualify for a loan, a land loan, shop around, find a property that's been, you know, it depends on the area. Some areas, properties already perk tested, meaning you can put a well right in. Um, those are the best ones to buy because, you know, you don't have to hand dig a well. It, you can have one just installed um, and you can have an electric well, whereas having a hand pump well and uh shop around find property you can find property very cheap um even though these days property is expensive you gotta you know shop outside your local jurisdiction if you're in a local jurisdiction where everything's expensive you're gonna have to go outside of it i mean a buddy of mine uh murph who gets in contact with you he lives in a uh a county a couple counties away from me and uh he has his land because his family's had it since 1864 but uh if he was to buy it now his property would be in the millions of dollars Jeez. just because of, I mean, how expensive. I think in his county, one acre is going for about $150,000 right now. So uh, you definitely got to shop in very rural, remote areas to get cheap land. And that's going to come with multiple hurdles if you have a family and children. You know, if you have kids and, and a wife and long commutes to work, you're going to have to find a close place to work if you want to, you know, not travel far. I mean, it's just one of the things uh, America's coming to this point where uh, land is expensive. If there's a lot of commodities around it, and if there's not a lot of conveniences and commodities around it, it's cheap. So you got to shop around. And uh, like I said, you know, you're going to have to probably apply for a loan. Most people have to. Some land out there in America is still in the double digits for multiple acres. I mean, around me in a couple towns over, there's a guy selling 78 acres and he's only selling it for $86,000. You know, it's pretty cheap to still be in double digits before those zeros come in. And then uh, there's a resort town, probably maybe another 25, 30 miles from me. And it's half a million dollars to buy property there. So, you know, it all depends on where your location is. It's all about location, location, location. And uh, you're going to have to have good financial uh, backings, uh, good credit score to get a good loan. There's not really many ways around it. Property is just through the roof in the United States, state to state. There's a lot of ways after you buy your property, you can offset the cost. Like I said before in the first one, the first podcast, there's always the Homestead Act. A lot of states, after six months living on the property, if it's your only dwelling, you can put it on the Homestead, uh, put a Homestead tax credit on it, and that will basically cut your property tax pretty sharply, so you don't have to pay too much of the property taxes. Um, I don't want to act like you're a financial rep here, but if you have an escrow, you don't have to pay property taxes. <laughs> um, think of it this way. Uh, if you align yourselves with the IRA, make sure it's a Roth IRA, just saying. Uh, but yeah, it's it's all about shopping around, finding good land. And uh, another thing when you're finding your land, guys, make sure it's going to be worth the money you're putting into it. Make sure the resources on the land are going to be worth it. Don't just buy. Just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's good. Cheap land usually goes 
cheap. So don't go out there and see 37 acres for $40,000 and think it's the steal of the century. You're going to get there. There's going to be no running water. It's going to be not pass back there. It's going to have no water, no natural springs under it. So uh, find good land, land that's has a you know a couple of local jurisdiction tests passed on it. Um, survey it personally before you buy. Find a good bank with a good rate and a good loan. And like I said, always have about $14,000 cash money, legal tender, that you can use. Um, it's better if you find a, believe me, it's better if you find a property with a shelter on it. It's going to cost you a little bit more money. But unless you have an idea of what shelter you're going to need for your family, um, building one might not be in your area. It depends on prices of lumber. Um, if you want to get into it and chop down trees and build your cabin out of living wood or your, your shelter out of living wood, mm-hmm. but uh, it's all going to depend on location, availability, your financial gains you have, your credit schools, local banking, uh, interest rates. It's just it's it's going to take a while. I mean, for me, I shopped around for a few months and wound up stumbling on my uh, property. Another thing, I don't know if I covered it in the first podcast, but when I had gone to America, I had, uh, at my mother's request upon her death, she had to sell off the farm because it was in such financial ruin from my siblings' mismanagement. And I, I walked away with $4 million Australian, which at the time corroborated with just above uh, $1.5 million American so buying property oh, wow. wasn't exactly like uh you know it was a small loan of to quote a great American it was a small loan of a million dollars so uh <laughs> you know it uh it wasn't exactly like uh it was kind of like pissing in the wind for me but it's not like that for everyone else and uh it's gonna be hard to acquire like I have 290 acres I'm gonna tell you right now to be honest with you 40 acres and a family of six is perfect 60 acres is even better my thing is this I own 290 acres. I have walked probably over all 290 acres. It's not on the same day, probably not the same week. And I'm telling you right now, I can't be everywhere at once. So, and you guys got to remember, even though it might say 20 acres, 20 acres is a lot of land. Just because it's a small number. If you've actually walked 20 acres, it's a lot of land. So don't go out there with high hopes to buy hundreds of acres of land. Start small, shop around, then start getting bank loans and prices. It's going to be a financial hurdle for anyone. But uh, the best thing you can do after buying is to offset the cost. It's always going to be a strong financial burden buying the property. The best thing you can do is offset. So apply for the homestead tax credit. Um, you know, try and cut your spending. Try and get livestock, crops, things like that. Offer your services to other people. If you can, if you know a trade, start using it in your local area. It makes you a lot of money, I'm telling you from personal experience. And uh, I always recommend having $14,000 American dollars on hand after your bank loan and property has been settled. But uh, like I said, it's going to be a financial burden. The best thing you can do is save up and start shopping for land. Find what it, what you need, what you require for your personal family. If you're a single single person out there, you might require less. If you have a family of four or six, you might require more. Think of your family's individual needs. Think of if you need a hospital nearby, if you need a school nearby. Think of what you need, then shop for the land and price accordingly and save accordingly. That's the best advice I can give. Yeah, I think that um, I think that that's probably going to be obviously the hardest part for anyone. And 
is just having the money to do it. You know, the, the knowledge is knowledge of how to start and like where to start and everything is kind of a, the next biggest hurdle. But, you know, I think that part of the other thing too, is that, um, you know, obviously everything costs money. And uh, I think that people realize that, you know, we're, we're only getting closer to, if, if something bad is going to happen in our lifetime, we're only going to get closer to it, right? So you need to have all your ducks in a row before before that happens. And if people want to start getting a homestead while equipping themselves, while you know trying to get training courses in and, and train with other guys and, and try to do everything at once, it's like you, you've got to have some insane job that's going to pay you a lot of money to do that. And if you do, you probably spend a lot of time at your jobs and you're not going to have time to do all this stuff as well. So it's, yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely not easy. Oh yeah. I mean, you definitely have to price out when you start, what you're going to need to start all the things. Do you have the right equipment, the right vehicle? What are you going to need? You have to price all that in when you buy the property. That's why I recommend having the $14,000 squared away because you never know what you're going to need to buy. When you get into a property, you don't know how the, what you know what shape the shelter is going to be in when you get there. A lot of them shelters aren't exactly in good shape anymore. They've probably been abandoned by somebody's grandparents for you know seventy years. So you know it all depends on your your particular situation. Yeah, definitely. Um, let me see what the next one was. Mm-mm-mm. All right, here's here's one from uh from one of my buddies who's a, f- a fellow uh Australian. How many Tassie tigers has he seen? Oh, I haven't. I've seen them in photographs because they're all fucking dead. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I think the last one died in captivity in 1938, I believe. Um, I've seen them in black and white photographs, but I've never seen one in person. They're, to my to my knowledge, they're extinct. Unless there's some cryptid version running around, they're extinct. I believe the last one died in captivity in 1938, 39, something like that. Dude, they're probably all in Afghanistan putting on vests and bushes and trying to go up to uh, coalition forces. Yeah, they're probably hiding around uh, Sydney trying to plan a uh, mass attack, bring back <laughs> secret society. It's like uh, free Masons. Yeah, exactly. Um, so other than corn, what are some of the other plants that you use to feed your livestock? I use uh, corn, um, beans, any type of beans. There's like, you know, because you can only produce with so much you can eat and so much you can sell. And eventually there's just so much that you can't store feasibly. So, you know, I'll feed the, the goats with the beans, feed the corn with the chickens. Uh, watermelon, chickens love. You get a rotten watermelon you can't eat, throw it to a chicken. They'll tear that damn thing up. Any type of melon, to be honest, cantaloupe, melon, mm. watermelon, they, they'll tear it up. Um, believe it or not, chickens will eat meat. They are carnivorous if if it comes down to it. Think of a chicken as nothing but a descendant of a dinosaur. I've given them, I've given them meat before when they have eaten it. I mean, I've given them scraps. If I go, you know, shoot a deer or I uh, butcher an animal and I have any scraps left that I'm not going to use and I can't render it down with a lot or anything like that, I'll just throw it to the chickens and I'll eat it. Um, uh, definitely with chickens, I'd advise not to feed them anything with citrus. It can affect their lowing capa- uh, their laying capabilities. So things like uh, lettuce, um, orange peels, lemons, things like that. Anything with citrus in it, cabbage. Try and stay away from giving it to them as it will uh, damage their laying capabilities. 
Uh, it will kind of not permanently, but it will stunt it. So you definitely don't want to do that. Um, but yeah, chickens will eat anything. Anything you throw to them, a rotten tomato, they'll eat that. Uh, <laughs> an aubergine, so eggplant for Americans, you throw them that, they'll eat it. Uh, like, you know, tomato, tomato, however you pronounce it, they'll eat it. They don't care. Um, and goats, goats will eat, they'll eat grass off the ground. They'll eat tree leaves, rotten or not. They don't care. They'll eat uh, hay, straw, feed that you give them. Um, in the wintertime, if, if the water's iced over, they'll drink their own piss. I've seen plenty of times where they'll, they'll hike up their back legs, stick their head back there, and drink their own piss right out of the tap. So, I mean, you know, animals know how to take care of themselves. and Beats the sink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that, that tap water that's making the frog gay. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah, the uh, chickens mostly. I'm the the only animal that I have to strictly manage. Same as quail, any type of poultry, any type of bird, fowl. I have to strictly manage because, in my opinion, they're stupid. They can't take care of themselves. Yeah, um, but the, the the things like goats, you know, they they are uh, they can take care of themselves pretty damn well. They'll eat anything too. I mean, a goat. Say I pick my string beans, green beans, whatever you want to call them. If I pick them off the plant. Off, I can just bundle up all the plants and throw them in there. They'll be content with eating that. The Christmas tree, you get a little pine tree, a little fir, whatever you get um, when you're done with it. Instead of you know calling the garbage man, we don't have that in my area. I throw it in with the goat pen, and they'll clean it down to a bare stick, and they'll just burn the stick. So, uh, you know, it's definitely, I mean, a chicken, a quail, they'll eat anything. Uh, just don't give them citrus. They'll eat meat. They'll eat uh, bugs, regular insects. Um, melons, rotten food. If you have anything rotten in your crop garden and you're just going to let it lie, throw it in with your animals. They're going to eat it. Uh, they don't care. It's not like they don't have sensitive stomachs like we do. We are probably the most least evolved animal on that homestead. So, uh, you know, just you can feed them anything but citrus for the chickens. And a lot of times things like cows and goats, pigs, they'll just kind of eat anything, you know. So that's all I really have to add to that. Do do you ever taste it? Like, can you taste a difference in chicken eggs based on what they've been eating? Like, if you feed them meat for a little bit, do the eggs taste or? I've never tasted a difference um, feeding them meat or anything like that. Uh, I have tasted a difference when I, and this is why I say don't feed them citrus. I have tasted a difference feeding them citrus. I've noticed the shells are a lot harder feeding them citrus. And, uh, it does. I've noticed that there was a stunt in growth, and when I looked it up, it, it is a factual statement. But uh, citrus mm. is the only thing I've ever noticed that has actually made uh, chickens' eggs taste a little off, a little different, kind of made them a little bit sour. Um, also, another thing, too, about chickens is they will eat their own eggs. If you do not feed them frequently enough, they will get hungry enough, go between their legs, and open up their own eggs. And uh, the best way to stop a chicken from doing it, if they, you can't get them to stop, is to remove them from the pen and cut off the head because they will not stop. Once they get the taste of their own young, they will keep eating and eating and eating. So you make sure you feed them on time because if not, if you're off by a few seconds and that egg's beneath them and they peck it open, it's over. They got the taste for it, the taste of their own supply, and it's all over. So, uh, but yeah, I've never tasted, I've never even tasted a difference between a duck egg and a uh, chicken egg. I've heard some people around my area say there's a difference. I've never tasted a difference in either. So, hmm. probably, yeah, I've never tasted a difference if you fed them meat. Yeah, and, and I've known too that eggs or uh, that chickens will eat their own eggs, but I didn't realize that it was like really bad if they do that. 
yeah, if you can't, if they start and you catch them early enough, you can get them to break it, break the habit by removing them from the coop and then reintroducing them after a little bit. But if they mm-hmm. won't stop, others will it'll spread to others doing the same activity. I've had a few of them where I've been able to get them back for the majority of the time, though. It, I'll just remove them and they become dinner. So. Damn. Yeah, that's uh, it's not good. Um, do you have any preservation techniques for meat? Uh, yeah, I, I have a few. You can smoke it. That tends to last about smoking tends to last around uh, maybe uh, six months. That's like the most basic method. Uh, you can render animal fat down in the lard, store them in jars of lard, mason jars. You know, just not even sealing them, just storing them in lard. And uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that with uh, without enough accent for anybody to understand what I'm saying. Lard. Yeah, L A R D, lard. And so I'm not pronouncing the R's there. But that preserves it for about a year in an unsealed can. You can also, the method that me and my wife do, cord it up in the cubes place it in a mason jar and put it into a uh, pressure canning system and pressure seal the cans. It, it will last about two years in a can. And then of course you could salt it up and doctor it up and put it in a tin can. I've never done that before. I'm sure it can be done. It used to be done back in the day with potted meat. Um, you know, people used to eat it back in the day. I've eaten potted meat before when I was in the army. Uh, not the, the most brilliant tasting thing on the earth. <laughs> I could go without tasting it again, but, yeah, I've heard the term, but I've never like looked into the process of that or tasted any of it. Yeah, I've never, I've never personally made. When I was in Australia, we called it bully beef, uh, but it's just potted meat. Uh, I've never personally looked into it. It, it. In my opinion, it tastes enough to where I, I wouldn't do it personally ever again. But um, I, the method I find the best is to get yourself a pressure canner because you can use the same pressure canner to store vegetables, and you can do the same thing with meat. You just store it in enough water and uh, remove all the moisture that's not inside of your device. And it depends if you want to keep it in uh, water for short-term storage. If you don't, I usually don't keep it in water. I usually store it inside of lard and then pressure seal it. And uh, there's a lot of videos. You can go on the internet, probably YouTube, and probably find the videos of people pressure using a pressure canner to do it. And uh, that I've had it last, I don't know how long it would last. I've had it last two years, and it was still good when we ate it two years later. Mm. So uh, I don't know exactly how long. It could last longer than two years, but I haven't personally done that, so I'm not going to gallivant different uh, scientific methods. I know it lasts up to two years because I've personally experienced that, so that's what I'll say. It could last longer. I don't know. But you can find those videos online. Just look up pressure canning uh, meat, and it'll come up with deer meat, beef, things like that, and it will it'll tell you how to do it. It's pretty relative. And pressure canners are a very good investment because, like I said, you can use it for vegetables too. How, how much do they usually run, like on average? Oh, when my wife bought ours, um, I believe it was around. We, you know, we bought the pretty, you know, uh, pretty good set. It was like four hundred dollars, but I think they can usually run between like maybe two hundred. They, they, they do like a two hundred dollar investment, two hundred fifty dollar investment okay. for a basic one, and then they only go up from there. I mean, I'm sure there's ones out there that probably go in the thousands of dollars, but anywhere between two to four hundred dollars, you got yourself a pretty good one. Yeah, that's cool. Um, this this guy asked, uh, "What's the response time for your group?" And like, you know, because you live in such a rural AO, uh, what what's like an average response time if you've gauged that? Oh, I have actually never gauged it before. I would assume like response. Uh, 
is his response time as in like first responders or for like a like, like, a, like if if something like was a, going on and you needed all your buddies that you trained with, uh, like a, to, okay, a group of fellas. Yeah, we'll go, we'll go with the group of fellas. We're not gonna use the M word. We'll use group of fellas. Yeah, a group of fellas. Some, yeah, a group some of fine fellas. gentlemen that need to swing by. Yeah, so, uh, minute men. Um, <laughs> it would probably be from the local town. Um, shit, probably a me maybe 15, 20 minutes from the oh, furthest wow. settlements. Um, and that's if they're walking. I mean, if you go by car, maybe five to ten minutes. I mean, it's a pretty tight knit town. If something were to happen. If we say we put the town back in 1775 on Lexington Green, it would probably take about five minutes by pickup truck or car to get to town center, the general store and post office. So by, uh, by technical, yeah, yeah, by technical with the big uh, water cooled machine gun on the back, <laughs> you know, with the crank, yeah, the old Gatling gun, yeah, that's the, that's powder rifles. That's wild to me. Whenever you know guys are all within five to 20 minutes of like everybody else um, or at least like a sizable number of number of guys. Like for me, it's, I I'm sure that there are guys that are, I could, you know, get like a full, a full group of guys within that amount of time. But it's like, I don't, I don't know what the quality of them would be just in my area and everything like that. Like I have a couple friends that are within 20 or 30 minutes of me, but, the majority of guys, I, I kind of have to extend that circle to like an hour, and uh, and not even be super strict on that hour. Oh yeah, I mean, like people in my area, there's a lot of older fellas. I mean, there's a lot of young guys, a lot of guys in their twenties and thirties, believe it or not, in my area. And then you got the guys in their forties and fifties, and then you have the senior citizens. And uh, a lot of the guys don't have any military background. There's maybe three people I can count of who have actually served in the United States military. And only one of them has actually ever seen combat. And put it this way, he saw combat in Kuwait. So, I mean, that he's in his 50s. Hmm. And, uh, you know, just like any other, um, from coming from a military perspective, and uh, Australia, back in the day, they had various uh, training cadet programs. We even had a uh, purpose-built cadet rifle for cadet training programs in local townships. Um, and Americans, you know, if you go through American history, militias would often meet once or twice a month, train how to shoot if they even did train. I mean, if you look back at the war of 1812 in American history, a lot of the militias got drunk on their training day. So when it came time to face the redcoats, they just dropped and ran. They didn't know what to do. So I mean, it's all about how you fight, get drunk first. Exactly. That way, when you see two of them, you shoot at both of them, you're going to get them every time. uh, You know, leave no orphans. So uh, it's all, yeah, like I said, you know, and you know it, I know it. It's all about training. Um, and especially don't go out there and because uh, I've gotten a few homesteading questions about protecting and what products to buy. Don't be a consumer. Buy what works. Don't go out there and buy the um, $5,000 rifle, $14,000 night vision, you know, $700 plate carrier. If you're fighting in a dense woodland environment where you're going to have the element of surprise the entire time, you're not going to need all the things someone's going to need in a frontline combat scenario in the middle of the Middle East or in Africa or in a trench in Eastern Europe. You know, it's just, you know, it's just, you don't need to equip yourself like that. But yeah, the response time in my area, I think my homestead is one of the farthest ones out. I live about seven and a half miles from town center. And, uh, 
a lot of the other guys live within speeding distance of the town. So if anything, maybe me and a few other guys outside of the main settlement of the town would be the last ones getting there. But I'd say if, if everyone was duly noted, especially with technology now, you don't have to wait for a man on a horseback to come tell you that one by <laughs> land, two by sea. So uh, with modern technology, it would probably be a five to ten minute response time. It's a pretty tight-knit town. Yeah, that's, that's impressive. Um, all right, one, one of the last last two. So one of this one says, uh, what, what's your favorite axe? Oh, my favorite X, like brand or type of X? I don't know. <laughs> I uh, imagine probably probably type. Because um, like this, this is from one of my buddies who who makes them. I like a, a good double-headed X. Um, I just like carrying them. feel like a lumberjack carrying one of those. And uh, being that I built my uh, shelter out of living wood, a hewing X was another one that I really liked. I really liked the hewing X. Um, the double-headed X was nice, but... Uh, Chopping down trees, I, I would hit it with an axe a few times. Realize my joints are older than I think they are, and just go to the chainsaw. But uh, <laughs> a, double, a double-headed axe, in my opinion, was it was it was nice. I liked using it. Um, my favorite axe though is like a Hudson Bay axe, like a camp axe style. You know, I like those. I've always been enamored by the uh, like the tomahawk of the uh, natives, mm-hmm. but I like the Hudson Bay axe. That's a pretty good one. And uh, double-headed axe for splitting wood, things like that. And a hewing axe if I'm doing any type of building with living wood. It was those are my uh, go tos. Nice, nice. And then, uh, and then the last one I have is uh, uh, he says thoughts on alternative water sources such as a ram pump feeding from a creek. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't personally drawn water from a running water source in some time. Back before I had electricity, I would draw from a local. Uh, we have this local creek called the Fifteen Mile Creek. I would draw from it and uh as long as you have a way to filter all the sediment out because a lot of those creeks are going to have a lot of sediment a lot of sand as long as you have a way to filter it out and sterilize it depending on you know how clean your creek is i mean like 50 mile creeks right out of the mountains i mean you could probably drink the water with if you had some sort of way to filter the sediment you could probably drink the water right out of the creek so if you have some way of filtering it while it's coming through the system yeah it's, it's a viable source of water sweet yeah, that's uh, that's all the questions that I have on the, um, on the story post that I did earlier. So I know that you have quite a few questions too. Oh yeah, I do. I'm not sure how many of them are going to be redundant. Oh, I've already asked those questions. Oh, nice. <laughs> there was there was a lot of them that were redundant. There was a lot of them that asked the exact same specific question. I don't know if it was um, the same person. <laughs> yeah, uh, Murph did his best to put the username so. That way, he could tell if it was multiple people, but he didn't know if it was somebody with like multiple accounts trying to push through the same question. Um, so the first question I had was asked numerous times by the same guy. Um, uh, once I asked this question, that person was, would know who they are. I don't know if they contact. I think Murph might have said they got in contact with you. He had asked me how I started up my homestead, mm-hmm. and he wanted me going to step by step. I'm not going to do all that. It's uh, Christ, if I did that, it, I'd have uh, a book longer than the fall, Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. So uh, <laughs> just I'm going to give a brief synopsis. So when I started my homestead, of course, wasn't living on it yet. I had purchased the land without seeing it, which I recommend no one does. And uh, my land was on the backside of a farm. No one wanted it. The Somebody had died in the family and the siblings had sold off their portion to me. This is before I owned 290 acres, of course. And... Uh, 
when I bought the first bit of land, I realized there was no easement going to it from the main road. So I had purchased an easement from the landowners. And uh, to my surprise, there was no road going back to the property. So I had to pay a local with a bulldozer, a D5 Caterpillar bulldozer, to literally push a road through. I mean, just push trees over. Just push a road. Cut the landscape apart. And uh, that's why I said when you go land shopping, please look into everything, every little detail. Because any little detail you miss could hamstring you. So uh, in the meantime, while I was uh, having that all taken care of, pushing through the the trees to get an easement and a drive through and then uh, a spot cleared for a cabin I had uh, rented from the same local town that I am in now well actually a local town that was further away from the town I'm in now they had like a uh, I guess you say it was a glorified shed that they had turned in like a rent out apartment like a, I wouldn't even say an Airbnb it was like one of those little rent out places that you know for rent it was like a shed basically mm-hmm. so I had started out of that and used their property as a springboard when I came to America, I had really no winter clothing. Uh, in Australia, we don't really have the cold. We've had some cold winters before, but we never really had a lot of uh, like what America gets. So I had, uh, I also, like I said, I had no shelter on my property either. So when I started out, I had a uh, Mitsubishi Galant, which I switched out for a uh, Ford Ranger. It was on its last, literal last leg, rust holes all through it. Uh, one of the rear cross members on the frame was held on with zip ties. I'm not making this up. Uh, it was It was bad. And I realized I wanted to get a four-wheel drive truck. I wanted to put myself, even though I had a lot of money, I wanted to put myself on a budget. So I uh, made a list of everything I needed, food, water, clothing, temporary shelter, tools, things like that. Um, I wound up going. There was an estate sale. Guy was a Civil War reenactor. Had a large wall tent. It had a wood stove that went in it. Made it basically a hot tent. Had a little uh, platform he had built for it so you don't sit on the ground. And uh, I purchased that. Purchased that for it was like pennies on the dollar. I think I purchased it off him for maybe seven hundred fifty dollars. It wasn't even a lot. It was definitely less than what he had invested into it. Mm-hmm. I uh, traded out my uh, Ford Ranger for a uh, after I had got the vehicle I purchased running. I had purchased a uh, nineteen fifty seven or fifty six nineteen fifty six Willys pickup truck that a guy had that wasn't running, got it running, fixed it up. So that was my four-wheel drive truck. I traded my Ford Ranger for an old U.S. military equipment trailer. It was a flatbed trailer that I put wooden sides on to hold all my gear. Bought 105 gallons of clean drinking water, a bunch of uh, non-perishable items, uh, food and things like that. Um, I was already splitting firewood, so I'd have firewood for the first winter. Bought a bunch of, there was a local military surplus store in the town I was in. Bought a bunch of old military surplus winter gear. Figured it was the cheapest way to get winter gear at the time. And uh, once I had all that, I went to local car, uh, used um, item sales, flea markets, what they call them. Uh, state sales, bought all kinds of hand tools, automotive sockets, wrenches, things like that. Things I was going to need. Um, extra motor oil, gasoline, petrol, whatever you want to call it. And uh, once I got to a point I knew I was ready, I took off for the homestead property. And set up a tent, and my first American winter was uh, very cold, living in a tent. Uh, the first snowfall when I was in America was 14 inches of snow. Um, yeah, it was definitely a wake-up call for that. <laughs> um, so that I already started falling trees in the, the springtime, and uh, once the snows had passed, 
I had started erecting the uh, the next spring, started erecting the cabin. And uh, I was running out of logs, didn't split enough. Luckily, a uh, local had put in the post office an advertisement for uh, needing somebody to take down an old wooden barn and you could keep all the resources that you felt like you could reuse. And luckily, there was a lot of reusable hardwood inside of the barn that I was able to use, repurpose for the cabin. And uh, he had a lot of um, tin sheets that were stored in the barn that I was able to use for the roof. And uh, he had glass windows in the barn that were still good that I put inside and just repurposed a lot of things. So I kind of got the cheap way out on my barn uh, cabin. I was able to use part of his barn to finish the rest of my cabin. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when you're getting getting started, you, you got to, like I said, you got to process your feasibility of finances. I mean, even though I had all the money in the world, I still, I didn't even spend over $3,000 getting everything ready to go to the, uh, now granted, this was, 2000 and uh, early 2015 when I started getting everything ready to go to the homestead. So uh, it was everything was like 5% of the price it is now. Yeah. yeah you didn't have to deal with the mass inflation. It was, uh, shall we say, simpler times. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, definitely it's going to be a game changer nowadays. But like I said, I didn't spend over $3,000 getting ready to do my homestead. And I was a single person. You know, it's different if you have a family. That's why I recommend if you have a family, already have a shelter or don't sell the previous property you're living on now if you have a family if you want to hand build your own cabin do it before you move that way it's all said and done because i don't know how i would have raised five children and a wife out of a tent (laughs) bad enough it was bad enough for me being in the tent much less anyone else but yeah i mean you got to buy within your feasibility and uh i don't typically recommend like like i said i bought a 1956 willie's pickup that entails carburetors, six volt ignition systems, things that have been not commonplace. Part of the vehicle hasn't been commonplace since the 1960s. The other part hasn't been commonplace since the 1980s. So it's a thing, you know, I do as a homesteader recommend you in a four wheel drive, whether it's a truck, a utility vehicle, a ute. It all depends on what you need for your family, for your lifestyle. But I do recommend you have some sort of four wheel drive, whether it's, a, you know, an all wheel drive system or uh, one you have to activate yourself, I do recommend you have some sort of four-wheel drive system. Uh, the size of your vehicle, you know, I guess there was another question about uh, vehicles, so I'll just answer that now. The size of your vehicle has to pertain to what you're going to use it for. So I wouldn't go out and buy the biggest, baddest pickup truck if you're only going to drive your kids to school. It's not worth it. I mean, if you're only going to hold things in the bed and groceries and livestock, you can get away with a Toyota Hilux or uh, what they call them in Tacoma um, mm-hmm. or the Ford Ranger, you know, the small mid-sized pickups. If you're going to do things like hauling firewood, a lot of rock, you can get away with a half-ton truck, you know, the F-150, the, the Dodge Ram, I think they call it the 1500 and Silverado, things like that. If you're going to be pulling a trailer, you know, I'll go for a three-quarter ton truck. If you're going to be pulling a lot of heavy things, then go for a one-ton truck. Uh, personally, I know we've talked about this before. I recommend you buy the least amount of electronic computers possible. I wouldn't go out and buy the all new 2023, you know, Ram 3500 with the diesel engine because all of it can leave you stranded for no reason and cost you thousands of dollars in repairs that you are not prepared for. I would definitely go as rudimentary as possible. But like I said, find a vehicle that is within your capability to understand and it also fits your needs. Don't go out and buy like a 19. 19- 28 model a you know 
you're not going to be able to get past Fort half the time. It's going to be broken more times than not. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it all depends on your feasibility. I mean, when I bought my 1956 Willys pickup, I was able to fix it in seven months and get it all ready to go with a complete rebuild of everything. So, I mean, it all depends on your skill levels and what you can do. Um, personally, if you're just looking for some sort of vehicle, you can patrol your homestead. That can also go on local roads. I highly recommend the old uh, Jeeps. I mean, I'll just finish putting one together myself. Even though they only have maybe 60 horsepower to their name, they still can go 45, 50 miles an hour down a local road, and uh, they can patrol with four-wheel driver all around your homestead. They weigh absolutely nothing. I think fully loaded, they might only weigh 2,000, maybe even just under a ton, I think. So they don't weigh anything. You can trail them around if you needed to. So, uh, But like I said, it all depends on your needs and capabilities, and uh, I mean, that's how I got started. Just like anyone else, you know, started with nothing, built my cabin by hand, built everything by hand, livestock pens, my barn, my, my uh, garage, all those things, started everything by hand. Um, so uh, I'm sure that person who asked that question numerous times know who they are. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> it, it was asked about four times, so I hope that answers their question. Yeah, I think that I think that Murph got it, and I got it too. So Yeah, so I hope that answers his question. Um, I got some uh, one question. This ties back into the cost of a homestead. Guy asked, uh, what are some cost-effective ways to build and finish a homestead, house, and cabin? And somebody also asked how to furnish it for cheap. So when I build my cabin, I use living wood or my property. I had already purchased it when I bought the property. It costs you not a dime. If you buy lumber, it's going to cost you. Personally, if you're going through the route of building a cabin, I highly recommend using living wood. Um, cedar is always the best. A lot of hardwoods are good. You know, you just got to look at what's on your property and uh, go from there. Um, if you don't have a lot of woods that are bug resistant, uh, you can, if you have birch trees, you can put their bark in, in a little cooker and you can extract oil from the bark. You can paint the wood with that and they'll keep bugs out. You have to reapply it every every year or two and they'll keep the bugs out from eating your wood up. But uh, I personally recommend the cheapest route is going with living wood right off your property. Cut it the size, put it in place. It's the cheapest route. You can go with lumber. You can go with a prefab. But the cheapest route is going to be chopping down the wood yourself and constructing it the way you want it built. It's going to be the cheapest way to go. Um, yeah, plus you'll probably be the happiest with it in the end. Yeah, exactly, because you can see that you build it. Now, personally, for me, my family has outgrown my small. And if, if anybody hasn't seen a picture of what I have, you can go on the Longhouse Instagram, and it, it's there my uh from the first podcast i'd send all the pictures in if you look at the floor plan you can stand from one wall and see the rest of the cabin for the other <laughs> it's not exactly the best place for five children so i will be undertaking building a larger cabin here soon uh probably next spring i'll start felling trees and it'll probably be a year or two before it's built but uh i'm gonna build a larger cabin just so i can raise the family in a bit more i'm sure once the children get older they're gonna want their own areas private to themselves so i'm going to try and nip it off in the ass and get it done now but uh uh cheap ways oh and another way to personally i mean it all depends on what you want to do uh if you want to do it cheap on the roofing you can do uh what they call shakes which are just wooden think of as wooden shingles a lot of them times are sort of cedar shakes you can put those on the last for a couple of years and you got to take them back off again um you can do shingling actual you know 
regular asphalt tarmac shingling or you can go with a tin roof i went with a tin roof on mine i personally feel it lasts longer but you know it depends if you live in an area i know in the last podcast was stated if you live in an area with a lot of tornadoes you want to think about if you ever gets damaged in an inclement weather incident what's the cheapest way to fix it do you want to go with that roofing it's up to you um cheapest ways to furnish a homestead for me i'm not gonna lie even though i had plenty of money i used to go to the county refuse area and just see what people threw away that i could just put back together and use um one person had thrown away a sink it was a metal sink nothing was wrong with it i don't know why they threw it away i guess maybe they mm-hmm. remodeling their house so i cleaned it up that went into my house my cabin somebody had throw away thrown away a great uh, propane stove it was a beautiful propane stove probably from the early 1950s maybe late 1940s fix it up put that in the cabin uh a wash tub somebody had thrown away this great galvanized wash tub it was huge it was a massive wash tub look you could probably wash a horse in it somebody had thrown it away because it had some dents in it so that went into the cabin all my furniture mostly came from either estate sales people are selling it for next to nothing or from the refuse area the refuse uh dump i guess you could call it where people had just thrown away good furniture because they didn't need it anymore um so i mean the cheapest way to do is always just find what people are getting rid of if it's good and they're just getting rid of it for the CSH, you know just because of consumerism well you know one man's trash is another man's treasure so it all depends and if it's in working order by all means take it put it back together i'm sure you could go on your local uh uh what does it go uh, facebook marketplace you could probably go on that and find somebody local to you selling old things that work that just they don't need anymore um, some people can't use things like natural gas stoves in their homes because the house is not equipped for natural gas. So it all depends. I mean, it's all up to you. Where you furnish it is where you want to furnish it. But the most cost-effective way is just buy everything used or make it yourself. I mean, a lot of the wooden furniture I have, I made myself. And uh, it's up to you. Whatever route you want to take is going to be the best way. But the cheapest way to furnish it is to find it secondhand and make it yourself. It's always the cheapest way to do it. Yeah, there's also... Uh... My wife is on this thing on Facebook because uh, I don't I don't have a Facebook, but she does. So it's funny, like she'll text me all the time. She'll be like, hey, could you stop here after work? Um, but it's like a it's a group. It's called Buy Nothing. And it's just like a free people just give stuff away for free. It's something where it's like you don't necessarily want to throw it out. We give stuff away all the time on it, but you don't necessarily want to throw it out because it'd be wasteful. You don't want to sell it because it's. You just don't feel like going through the hassle and all that. But, I mean, we've looked on there and people have doors and sinks and faucets and everything like that, right? Like, they'll remodel their house and they don't necessarily want to throw something away, like I had said. They'll just post it on there. And and it goes everything from there to coat hangers and baby clothes and anything else you can think of is, is on there for the most part. So, if there's ever anything that we need we'll always check there first because more often than not, if it's something small, um, we can, we can go in there and, and literally get it for free. You just need to go pick it up. People leave it on their porch too. So you don't even need to talk to them. Yes. I mean, they're right there. It's just, and you know, like if you live in a small town, like oh, I do, you go to the post office, they have a little announcements board and people will put things on. Like, oh, I have uh giving away outdoor table set or giving away, uh, I don't know, uh, six foot livestock fence you know people do that thing at the uh post office and if you have social media like you said you can go on there and find it but it's always best to get it you know either make it yourself or get it secondhand 
and especially when it's free. Free is always best. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, next one, um, somebody had asked uh, two questions about tools. One was what tools will be needed to start a homestead and maintain it. And the other one was what tools will I need to hand build a cabin for my land's timber. And uh, both of those can go two ways, the easy way and the hard way. Uh, the easy way is you buy all hand tools. It's cheap. The hard way is you spend hard cash and you buy uh, power tools. Um, building a log cabin, I broke down and no, this is another thing I bought secondhand, but I bought my own lumber mill, my own log processor, and uh, it worked wonders for me. And it's definitely better than having to do what people did back in the day. You know, people back in the day to build structure that I built. In set, I built mine in uh, about nine months. It took me to build mine. And uh, back in the day, people used to erect houses overnight. Maybe a month would be done, but they also had like, you know, 20, 30 people working on it with hand tools back in the day. So if you're going to buy hand tools to, you know, do your own uh, timber, you're going to need some tools to scrape the bark off the wood. And uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. When you look up any type of timber tools, it's going to be there. You're going to need uh, hewing axes, felling axes, splitting axes, uh, moles, wedges. You're going to be cutting down trees by hand. Um, to maintain a homestead, you're going to need things. If you want to maintain your vehicles, maintain your uh, wells, maintain anything that's got bolts and nuts on it, you're going to need socket tools, socket wrenches, and actual combination wrenches, things like that. Um, if you now you want to spend money, go with equipment. And once again, you're going to need those same tools to work on equipment. But uh, personally, on my homestead, I try to put as much of the cabin together by hand as possible. And that entailed many, many sets of axes. A grindstone to sharpen the axes because they do get dull quite fast. Uh, I did have a chainsaw that helped me out a lot with cutting the trees down. I had a pulleys system of pulleys to lift the logs up higher than I could do myself. Um, ladders, you're going to need ladders to go up on roofs. Um, you're going to need, uh, like I said, socket wrenches, automotive tools when you're working on your own vehicles or equipment if you have tractors or uh, any type of small engines you're even going to need sockets and things if you're going to use uh certain lag bolts to hold wood together or uh maybe even you work on small engines if you have generators um so it, it all depends on your price points and uh it's pretty easy to find that stuff i've found every single hand tool i own i bought used from someone and I'm sure it's pretty easy to find that. I mean, I found it every single tool was somebody just didn't want it anymore. Somebody had hung it up on the wall as a antique ornament and realized they could probably get some money for it. Some people just gave it away because it was taking up space on a shelf somewhere. Uh, I have cross-cut saws, all kinds of things. Two-man saws that I've only used maybe twice with a buddy of mine. Things that just, you know, people give away for free and I decided to hoard it. But uh, it's, it's pretty easy to get, a, get across those hand tools. People usually don't like dealing with hand tools anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get a lot of second-hand power tools. Somebody's upgraded to a better set, and they don't want them anymore. Um, a lot of those uh, storage containers that people buy might have things in it. I wouldn't recommend doing it because you could you know, fall flat on your face. But uh, it all depends on your price points. You know, I can't recommend to everybody to go out and buy a log processor. They usually cost around $3,000 to $4,000. A lot of people just don't have that lying around. So I can't really just go out and, you know, say, go out, buy the log processor, go out there, <laughs> go up and buy a fucking farm tractor. I mean, when I put my, when I sow my crops and I have a farm tractor, I broke down and bought one. 
I have another tractor I have with forks on it and an A-frame lift in the back to pick things up. And, you know, I've joined the 21st century. But if you want to, you know, go out there and act like you're Daniel Boone erecting your own fort to keep the Indians at bay, you know, you want to go hand tools, you got to find them in your local area. And uh, it's going to be a lot of saws, a lot of hammers, a lot of nails. It's going to be a lot of things you're going to need. And to maintain a homestead, it's going to be a lot of replacing things. Uh, roofing when it gets damaged siding if you have it resealing your logs inspecting for rot inspecting for uh termites inspecting for other insects you know just a lot of things you have to go through and uh it's going to be i can't really recommend a lot because it's definitely up to the personal experience and the, the setting of your homestead and what you're going to plan to do so i'm gonna leave that kind of open concept question it's gonna be up to you uh, i can't really give too many uh tips besides that it's going to be up to you to find what you're going to need for the, the job at hand can't really recommend everything for every job it would take way too long uh, <laughs> that's the book yeah that, that, that's going into the book yeah if i sat here all night naming tools it would be like a uh the tv show home improvement and this you know <laughs> yeah just um so the next question i got was uh, uh somebody had asked what kit do i need to get to maintain or defend my homestead um you're gonna need a rifle shotgun something for animals um i'm telling you right now you live in the united states of america you're not going to be red dawn fighting off chinese russian paratroopers landing in appalachia uh you're not going to need armor piercing rounds a 50 caliber machine gun uh you, you know the deer rifle shotgun muzzle loader bow and arrow whatever you think you can do best with it's up to you personal opinion do i believe you as a homestead and need a plate carrier no do you want one buy it i don't care i don't own one uh it when it comes to kit to defend your homestead think of this as if you were defending your homestead it'll be a static defense think of it that way it's going to be a static defense if you're defending your homestead you're not going to be you know with your buddies actively infiltrating things you're not going to be clearing houses it's going to be a static defense long range if we're talking people if we're talking animals, just a, a rifle, a shotgun. It doesn't take much to kill an animal. The smallest bullet in the right spot will kill an animal. Um, I'm not going to go too much into kit. Uh, as a, someone who served in the military, and I'm sure you have plenty of military experiences yourself, there's a lot of kit out there. You're not going to need half of it. You're not going to need a drone. You're not going to need a warship. You're not going to need a, a small tank armored fighting vehicle. So... Uh, just get yourself a, a rifle, a shotgun, something that you can defend against animals and go for hunting. And, uh, you know, instead of kit, think about food and water. Think about how to stop bleeding if an injury occurs. If you wear a plate carrier and you don't know how to stop bleeding and you bleed to death, now you're as a corpse with a plate carrier. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, think about kit. Think about medical. Don't think about body armor. Think about medical. Don't think about a helmet. Think about how to keep yourself warm. Think about what predators you have that can attack your livestock. Think about what wildlife you can hunt to provide for your family and plan accordingly. So that's all I have to say for that one. Um, I'm not going to go out there and recommend you buy uh, the modern warfighting gear and look like a uh, special operations person on your homestead. Um, well, you that's something else too is just like, you know, when whenever people ask me, 
like, hey, I'm just starting to get into stuff. What should I get? Like, what kind of rifle and stuff should I get an AR-15? Generally speaking, I'm going to recommend an AR-15 to people. But generally speaking, people I'm talking to live in a more built-up environment. Like, if okay. you are literally out in the boonies, like, any you, you can get by with a manual action because the, the likelihood of you having to fight off a lot of people at once or getting like a sustained fight with a lot of people at once where you need, you know, an AR 15 and, and 30, uh, 30 round mags or more. And, you know, all your kit and everything is pretty, pretty low. Um, you're more so going to be looking at fighting off predators or potential animals. And, you know, you can, you can even get by with a decent lever action or something like that with, with that or, or a bolt action or something oh yeah i mean like personally i own an armor light rifle and I, I did get some questions about the difference between kalashnikovs and armor lights and guys to be honest i mean if you can get your hands on armor light rifle it's one of the best rifles out there there's a reason why half the world uses an armor light and half the world uses the kalashnikov and then there's those guys right in the center who use the uh fal those guys are special people you know, <laughs> i personally own an l1a1 slr I've never fired a fully automatic FNFAL. I've always used a uh, SLR. That's what we had in Australia. That's what I trained with. And, uh, you know, you know, is what it is. I mean, whatever you need for your purpose. Now, yeah, if you definitely bring up, if you live in like an urban environment, if uh, shit hits the fan, you're going to need uh, the ammunition capacity and a way to uh, tell people I'm uh, king of my region as I'm moving. So get out of my way. Mm-hmm. And that's you know what the armor light rifle gives you it gives you portable firepower, um, you know same way as back when people first colonized country and it was you know big boomstick. Now you have big boomstick that fires a lot of fire. But uh, yeah, I mean like a lot of these guys ask you know kit questions, and it's all about it's just all about your application. You're not going to need the modern warfighter kit if you're planning to live in a cottage in the middle of nowhere where you only know three other residents. <laughs> you know. It's, it, I mean, believe me, there's a lot of guys that I know in this small town who are, are, are uh, fit the category of a lava, which is nothing necessarily bad. I mean, if that's what, you, that's what you're into, that's what motivates you, go ahead and do it. But personally, if you're on a tight budget, I do not recommend delving deep until you have more money. I do recommend having portable radios that do have some distance to them. Radios, good communication. I personally use them. We have radios with 10 kilometer distance to where we can easily, especially when you're up on top of a mountain, which is always, you know, really good for radios because you're up there and you get better projections than down in a valley. Um, I can get on my radio and talk to other people and other houses all throughout the uh, small town. And uh, I guess you might as well say settlement being that the disparity between the houses is pretty far in terms of miles in the, you know, radio is always good. Medical supply is always good. Invest in those. Invest in a good rifle. Um, if you plan on defending against a human being, plan accordingly, you know. So, uh, yeah, well, that's all I have for that one. Um, uh, the next one was, uh, what are the basics I needed for a homesteading vehicle? Like I said, uh, I prefer four-wheel drive in simplicity. And uh, it's up to, up to you for the rest. If you can think you can tackle a carburetor and... Uh, Distributed endpoints. So if you think you just want to go with electronic fuel, it ups to you. If you want to go diesel, mechanical diesel, you can run it off a of cooking oil. Like I said in the first podcast, motor oil, cooking oil, or run like a damn demon. 
it all depends on what you want to do. Just remember, if you live in a cold environment, diesel's not always your friend. Sometimes you have to break out the uh, affectionately named Cosby in a can or uh, mm-hmm. easy start and spray the hell out of it to get it to fire off. So it's up to you. You know, it's, it's all up to simplicity, in my opinion. Um, yeah, because I mean, I don't know how easy it would be to set up like some sort of block heater on a homestead for for diesel. Yeah, exactly. If you don't have a lot of electricity, they do draw a lot of electricity at first. Once they get warmed up, they usually stop drawing, but they do draw a lot of electricity to warm them up. And a lot of your older ones, a lot of the mechanical ones that I'm referring to, usually didn't have block heaters. So, uh, you know, once again, now I've never had issues. Granted, I don't live in Alaska, Michigan, especially up a peninsula. I don't live in Maine. So we don't really experience the same cold temperatures in Maryland. I mean, we've, we've gotten below zero multiple times. Usually our winters are around double digit, single digit, but, uh, nothing like too, too much below zero Fahrenheit. So, uh, you know, it's just, it's up to whatever you think best fits you and what you can tackle in terms of mechanical ability. But I prefer simplicity over the modern, uh, vehicle. Uh, what was this one? Uh, what features will be needed to, um, yeah, maintain a vehicle? Like I said, simplicity, that one's already been answered. Um, uh, one guy asked what equipment is needed on a homestead. And like I said, that just ties into the tools. That all depends on what you want to do. If you want a farm tractor, it's up to you. If you want earth-moving equipment, you want a small excavator or a bulldozer or something, it's up to you. Um, it, you know, Those all come down to what you plan to do with your homestead. If you just plan to be some sort of 18th century homesteader, you're not going to need any of that. If you plan to have everything under the sun to make your homestead run flawlessly then you buy accordingly. It's all up to you. Um, then he asked what brands are best for equipment. I mean, it all depends on what you're going to buy. I can't list off every brand. Um, I guess for tractors, I like the older ones, the older, the better. International Harvester, Farm Oil brand. Um, Massey Ferguson is another one. Uh, Ford had their own tractor lineup. John Deere, the older ones, they're not the most powerful of them all, but they have a lot of aftermarket support. Kubota, isn't that bad in terms of bigger equipment you have caterpillar and john deere they're pretty good bobcat things like that so it all depends on what you want to buy and i'm sure you can go online and there's somebody out there who drools over equipment who can tell you the best review for each um uh, let's see what else we got uh sure to answer that one uh, this one was a pretty good one. What are good ways to have your homes to generate income? So like I said, tying back into the finances, it's all about making your money back the best way as you can. If you have uh, land that you can till and plant crops, try and sell produce, things like that, try and make your money back on produce, firewood. If you can sell a lot of firewood, depending on what rural area you live in, some people might not have access to firewood. You know, like in my area, a lot of the houses further away from the town center are people who just bought one acre plots and they don't own anything around them and they have wood stoves so they need firewood and you can sell firewood to them uh, like i said if you know a trade you can work on somebody's cars you're a sparky you can run wires if you're a plumber you can run pipes you know find ways that you can make money it's pretty simple um and definitely a lot of ways you can cut spending to save money too so it's just all about your area basic needs of people around you and your skills that can make you your money yeah, plus I'm sure that you could, if you're making any sort of money off of your homestead, you could open up like an LLC type of thing and, and start getting some of the uh, 
tax breaks for small businesses and all that stuff on top of if you're getting like a homestead oh, yeah. tax loan and you know obviously this is just more money that you can funnel back into it oh yeah yeah there's, there's always a, a way to skin a cat and then the uh american legal system when it comes to tax cuts there's always many loopholes and just do your research and you can find everything you need and uh like i said it's all about just your abilities i mean your abilities as a as anything you can know trades your ability to physical ability mental ability it all ties into being a homesteader if you're uh you can't walk 15 feet without being winded it's going to definitely affect your ability to be a homesteader if you know how to run pipe and run wire and if you don't if you don't know we're going to car and if you do it all ties in together but i mean eventually you'll learn it'll become natural to you but uh yeah using your skills providing resources needed you know it's it's been the you know founding part of civilization i mean just providing basic services to people who need your services it's how you make your money back um what crops are uh, grow to make last year round um so putting it out there no crop last year round uh, there's crops you grow in the spring and summer, and then there's crops you grow in the fall and winter. A lot of crops can survive the frost, some can. So you got to do your research personally. And uh, I'm going to, this is mostly for growing crops. Hey, can you uh, start that question over? You had gotten disconnected. Okay. Uh, the question was what crops are best to grow to make, uh, to make and last year round? Mm. So, uh, no, like I said, no crop can last year round. There's ones for spring and summer, and there's ones for fall and winter. Um, the first frost of the year usually kills off most of your summer crops. And uh, in a homesteading scenario, you want the crops with the highest calorific yield, starch crops, uh, corn, potatoes, things like that. You want things that are going to last you all winter, things you can cook with. Um, so like I said, corn, potatoes, whether the sweet, sweet potatoes, yams, whatever you want to call them, and regular potatoes um onions garlic those things you can grow in the uh, summertime and somewhat into the fall and uh in the winter time you can grow things like uh leafy greens like kale and collard greens you can grow uh turnips radishes things like that um and i recommend if you want to store your vegetables without having to can them you can build a root cellar um there's plenty of information online on how to build one pretty easy basically it can be 29 degrees outside and 60 55 60 degrees inside so your plants won't uh, wither up and basically all it is is just keeping moisture out so uh yeah like i said no plant can grow year round grow the ones that you know if you're gonna if you're gonna be selling produce grow cash crops but also grow stuff for your family grow crops with high calorific yield you don't want to be growing uh tomatoes then only grow tomatoes because you can't survive off of that eventually you're going to die of malnutrition so you want high calorific yield just like your forefathers grew plants, high calorific yield. And then if you're going to sell some, grow ones with, you know, cash crop, tomatoes, melons, whatever. So, uh, but yeah, no crop can last all year round. You can't put corn in the ground in December, the ground's too hard and it will die in cold temperatures anyway. So uh, in the, uh, the next one was, you know, best ways to make vegetables last through winter. So like I said, with the meat, pressure canning, you can do that with almost anything tomatoes, onions, sour. You want to make sauerkraut, you can make that in a damn five-gallon bucket. I've done it before. It's pretty easy. <laughs> um, that's how you make cabbage last pretty long. Um, you can, uh, if you have electricity and you have a freezer, you can always put things in freezer bags. But if you don't and you want to go the uh, the other way, you can always have canning. 
and most things if it's got skin like uh, potatoes if you're going to be putting them in a can or tomatoes you got to peel the skin off but uh root cellar works too i mean we have a root cellar on our on our homestead and i put potatoes i'll bag them up and put them in 50 pound bags and throw them in the uh, root cellar i'll throw cabbages in there whole heads of cabbage in there onions garlic things like that and uh they'll, they'll last the entire winter now granted they're not going to last indefinitely one winter is all they're good for and after that they're junk i usually throw them to the animals if we didn't need it um but you can always can it. I usually can things like beans, tomatoes, onions, squash, zucchini, things like that. Cucumbers, we usually try and pickle them. We've pickled onions before, pickled beets. Pickling is, like I said, pickling is another good thing. Canning, in general, the pressure canner. And like I said, when you buy a pressure canner, it might be 200 to $400, but it's a great investment. You'll use it for meat. You'll use it for vegetables. You'll get plenty of use out of it. You can even use it for fruits. You'll get plenty of use out of it. Um, you can turn things into... If you got a uh, strawberries, things like that, you can turn them into jams, preservatives, jelly. Can that? It lasts a very long time, years. You know, canning is the way to go with all that stuff. Yeah. But you can also put a root cellar in. So you know. But uh, like I said, if you put it in a root cellar, once you get through that winter into next spring, none of that's any good in my opinion. Just once you get new things coming off the vine, get rid of everything in the root cellar because it's not going to last indefinitely that way. So, uh, yeah, like I said, that pressure canner that you buy might be two to four hundred dollars, but it's one of the best investments you can make as a homesteader for self-sufficiency. So, uh, is there anything you want to add to that one? Do you have any questions about the uh, preserving food? No, no, because we had also, we had uh, talked about preserving meat earlier too, and you basically were just saying that pressure canning is kind of the way to go for everything, and in. in I think it also has to do with like bang for your buck, right? Like if you're going to be preserving a lot of stuff, then yeah, you should probably find a better way to, to do it. But if you're only going to be doing what most people are going to do, which is maybe some meat, if you get a deer in the, in the you know fall and some, some gardens that you have in your backyard or whatever, a pressure cooker is probably sufficient. Cause if you pay even 400 bucks for a decent pressure cooker and you save you know, $400 worth of groceries pretty quickly. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's all about self-sufficiency. You don't have to go to the supermarket and spend the outrageous prices that are coming around these days for just basic needs if you can provide for yourself. Uh, the next one... Yeah, definitely. ...was uh, the best setup for plumbing and electricity. So we covered that partially when we talked about uh, providing for a family. I'm going to say right now, solar is one of the best ones. Most homesteads, you're not going to be able to provide enough wind power for yourself. I mean, you could try it, but, you know, depending on where your location is, you're not going to have enough energy collected. Solar is one of the easiest ones to get collected. I've never messed with hydroelectricity. I'm sure there's some way you could probably rig it up outside your house to make some sort of hydro plant. I've never done it myself, so I can't really recommend it. It's going to take a lot of trial and error, a lot of research. I've personally used solar. Solar, to me, works it provides all the power I've need. I've never actually ran out of power in the uh, storage bank from solar energy. And it partially because, you know, we don't have a lot of electric items in the uh, household. But uh, it all depends, you know, if you're living in a suburban area, you know, you check your local laws. You can't just, a lot of places won't let you just throw solar panels on the roof or outside in your backyards. So you got to depend on that too. But uh, in terms of off-grid, 
solar, in my opinion, is the best way to cre uh, create electricity. Um, there's also some outdoor steam boilers I've seen some people in the local area have where they just keep feeding it wood and the steam turns a turbine, which makes electricity. You could do that too, but just remember, you keep going outside and keeping the fire hot, feeding it water, feeding it wood. It's a lot of hassle, in my opinion. Um, plumbing. If you have some sort of electric well, it's pretty simple. The, the well with a well pump pumps the water through the house or your, your cabin, whatever you have. So as long as you have electricity and electric well, it's pretty straightforward. It's a pump that forces water through all the areas. You can use gravity-fed water if you have a natural water source and a natural incline from your homestead. You can use gravity. But uh, easiest way is if you already have electricity off the solar, just run an electric well with a well pump. Always have a hand pump well set up somewhere just in case the electric one fails. You know, that's the best. That's what I use. That's what I can best recommend. If you want to try something different, it's all about research. So uh, moving on, um, somebody had asked best firearms that are for hunting. Hmm. So pretty sure I answered this in the last one. In my opinion, if you strictly for hunting, buy yourself, go out there, buy yourself uh, for the cheapest price point. Go out there and buy a single shot. Um, there was a company back in the day, multiple companies back in the day in America. One was called H&R. One was called uh, NEF, New England Firearms. They used to make these guns where you'd buy the receiver and the barrels would just clip in. Just like an AR-15 with two pins. Now imagine it's one pin. You could uh, go from 12-gauge to 44 Magnum to 4570 Government to 45 Colt. Go to, uh, say, 20-gauge, go to 10-gauge. As long as you had the barrel to fit the receiver you could fire a cartridge out of it because it was hammer-fired. As long as it would just go in for any centerfire round, it was perfectly fine. So if you were able to get a hands on one of these guns, you'd have your main investment already dumped in just the receiver and whatever barrel is already on the gun. The rest of the barrels, you can buy them piecemeal anywhere. They still sell them. They're cheap. I think one barrel usually runs around $30, $30 to $50. It's pretty cheap. And you could have multiple hunting rounds. Say you wanted this rifle and you want to go on a hunting trip. Say you live in, uh, say you live in, let's say Virginia, and you want to go out to Colorado and hunt big game out there. You want to go, you know, somewhere else in the North American hunt big game. You could buy a bigger barrel if you want to hunt, say a turkey. You can buy a shotgun barrel for that. If you want to hunt a goose, a duck, any type of fowl, you can buy a bigger size, smaller size shotgun barrel. If you want to hunt a deer, depending on your local restrictions, you can buy different calibers. So that's the cheapest investment, in my opinion. If you're not all about that and you know exactly what you want, lever action, bolt action. Which, well, it's up to you, but the cheapest, in my opinion, is a single shot. Cheaper than that's a muzzle loader. Like we said, I think we said in the first one, first podcast. In a shit hit the fan scenario, the longest lasting firearm, in my opinion, is going to be the smoothbore flintlock. You can shove anything down the barrel, make your own powder. But, um, if you're just going to be hunting, it's, it's not worth it to go into that. If you have a steady supply of bullets and you're trying to go cheap, I wouldn't really dive into that. I would just get whatever you can find and go with that. It's not going to be, uh, it's not down to ballistics. I mean, if you're if you're that serious into ballistics, then you already know what you're looking for. Yeah. If you're just looking for something that can drop an animal, all you need is uh, some sort of manual action rifle, semi-automatic if you want it. But single, single shots are the always cheapest. The only time single shot's going to be expensive 
is when you start getting into like competition guns or the old uh what do they call it uh, cowboy target oh, shooting. Yeah, cowboy action yeah. shooting yeah you start getting into things like uh if anybody's ever seen the movie quickly down under with tom Selleck, he's got a uh a sharps rifle those guns usually go for three thousand dollars brand new you don't need that um like i said these little single shots they work pretty good i've used them before and uh never had an issue with them i've changed barrels out in the middle of a hunting trip changed out from uh, a deer caliber to a shotgun to hunt rabbits and they've never given me an issue i mean there's different combination guns too i've seen them 22 and 20 gauge 22 and 12 gauge you know it's all up to whatever you think you need um personally i recommend that every homesteader should learn how to use a bow personally i mean a bow is a really good cheap alternative to a firearm if you know how to hunt you know how to get close even if you hunt out of uh, some sort of blind or a stand a bow is a very very cheap alternative uh, archery is one thing you should probably learn teach your children teach you know your spouse archery is definitely the cheapest route and if you don't want to yeah, use a definitely. firearm. Yeah, it's definitely one of the cheaper routes. Muzzle loaders are cheap. I know you said before you have a uh, muzzle loader. And yep. uh, they're cheap to feed. I mean, you can make percussion caps. They, they sell them online, a percussion cap maker. You just take a punch and beat out little pieces of a soda can and just put a little priming compound in it. And you can make your own percussion caps. You can make your own powder. And you can make your own lead. I mean, and depending on your local hunting regulations, you can use a muzzleloader throughout most of the hunting season without any restrictions. So it's up to you, you know, anyone who's watching and listening to this podcast, it's up to you to buy what you think is best, what it fits in your price category. Do I say go out there and buy the Hegan Fergan gun from 1864? No, I do not recommend you go out and buy that. I recommend you buy something that's viable to reload for. I recommend you do reload for your firearms. Once you buy the bullets, you already own the brass. Might as well just reload it. I wouldn't see throwing good brass away just to buy more. Buy the reloading press. Buy the dies. They're not that expensive. Buy primers. Buy powder. Buy the bullets. It's pretty cheap to reload, and it saves you time and money. If you shoot a lot, if you do a lot of target shooting, you know it's it's very cheap just to reload your own ammunition. Saves you a lot of money. You already bought the bullet once. Why buy it again? But you can just make it again. Make even It's even cheaper just to make your own ammo off the start than it is to just buy it and then remake it. So if you just buy all the components and build your own ammunition. Um, even shotguns, you can make your own shells. You can buy already fired shells and just put them back together again. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's up to you, whatever your cost range is. I wouldn't you know, suggest going out there and buying the weird guns, though. Believe me, there's, there's some guys that I've uh, gone to a local shooting range, and they have the weirdest guns <laughs> I've never seen before firing, like... The weirdest uh, bullet. I mean, I have some weird stuff. Don't get me wrong. I have a Martini Henry rifle. I have a uh, Snyder Enfield rifle. Things that the, the bullets went obsolete before the turns of the century. But uh, some of these guys have some very, very interesting things that I don't even know. I won't even know how much it costs to fire a bullet. I think every time they fire a bullet, it's probably like 4 or $5 coming out of the end of the barrel. Oh, yeah. Um, I definitely don't recommend buying some niche caliber just because you saw it in a video game because some guy on... Uh, the internet said that uh, this gun was rare, so you need to buy it. Buy something that's you know easy to buy, get bullets for if you don't want to reload. If you want to reload, tackle that own. You know you got to tackle that your own. But uh, you know I'm not going to go into various calibers. There's a there's a whole internet for that. There's a lot of people out there who have done it all, have seen it all. So 
I'm not going to really dig into that. But like I said, I recommend if you just want to buy a cheap rifle that can do many things, buy a single shot and switch the barrels out. It's one of the easiest things you can do. I've even seen for the AR-15 a uh, 50 caliber muzzle-loading barrel for the upper. I've seen an upper for muzzle-loading. So it all depends on what you want to do, what what you feel is best fits you. So, uh, Yeah, I think that a lot of people, too, get kind of too wrapped up into the gun stuff and like yeah exactly yeah okay you have like 6.5 creed more and these other kind of more specialized rounds for like long range and then they think that that translates to better ballistics for hunting and whatnot and it's like in all honesty you can get by with a muzzle loader um it might not always be the easiest but also it's going to be cheaper initially and it's going to be cheaper in the long run. And if you're solely using it for hunting, like you had said, yeah, muzzle loader is probably the best way to, to go. Um, and then other than that, like, I mean, hell, I'm, I feel kind of, uh, I, I guess it would be in a way kind of hypocritical because, uh, you know, I'm thinking about now, now getting a, a 300 blackout like the Ruger Americans that, uh, can take like AR mags and stuff, but get one in 300 blackout to run with a suppressor. But other than that, I mean, I think that even just getting like a basic 308 or anything, anything that has available ammo. I mean, I have mil serps and 303 British and 30 out six and all that stuff that are going to kill anything in North America just fine. Oh, yeah. I mean, I personally own a, uh, British Enfield myself. It was uh, one of the rifles that I went through marksmanship school on. And, uh, I mean, if it was made for just, and like another question was about military surplus rifles. Uh, if it was made for a military, it doesn't mean it's exactly going to be good for hunting. I mean, I, there was one local guy. He had, uh, the local gun shop had a couple of these old uh, Springfield trapdoor model rifles. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know what those are, it's just, a, they just basically took a uh, musket, chopped the back out, and made a breech loading action. And uh, there, there was where 4570, if anybody's ever used 4570, the Lord's around, that's where it came from. Uh, so I purchased one. Uh, I believe mine was in 1876, 1877. And the young guy had bought one. It was like 1892. It was like the last. It was pretty clean rifle. Look, they just came off the factory. Paid good money for it. Took it to the range, put the bullet in the chamber, aimed down at the target, fired, and uh, he... Uh, shot uh, well above the target after looking at the sights the minimum sighting on that rifle was 250 yards hmm. so uh, you'd have to aim about probably five inches low in order to hit your intended spot of an animal so uh i don't know about most people but i can't imagine exact five inches when an animal's sitting in front of me at 30 yards 40 yards um so you definitely don't want to go run out there and buy a mill set because i'm telling you right now most military surface rifles they start out at between 100 yards. I'm just going to use uh, American measurements here. 100 yards, 200 yards is where they start. So at 50 yards, you're going to shoot over your target. So you need to kind of go in thinking that. Then not really all military rifles were made for hunting. Um, usually you can get away with your German Mausers. They're pretty much spot on, your American rifles. Most Enfield rifles, except for like the number four, the number four you can't really get away with. They, they shoot a little high. Um but, um, yeah, I mean, military surplus is always viable if you can find the ammunition. Um, don't go out there and buy, like, one of those rifles that some third-world country used that was based off of uh, first-world countries that uses, like, uh, 
some weird five to nine millimeter round that you can't find anymore. It's not viable. Uh, and also a lot of these military service rifles, they're beat to the dirt. Yep. Um, I've seen ones where you could drop a number two pencil down the ball and go all the way down to the, the back of the bolt. Uh, they're not exactly. Some of these rifles were shot very well. Some of them were using training exercises. I mean, you don't want to go out and just buy any military service rifle. I definitely would not recommend going on the internet and buying one. If you're going to buy one, buy it in person, unless you buy from some reputable place that takes every single measurement. I wouldn't recommend buying one on the internet because you can you can get sold a very terrible weapon. I mean, there's the local shooting range we have. I've seen guys come in with a uh, – one guy had bought an uh, M1 Garand from uh, – I believe it was Gunbroker, mm-hmm. and uh, he was going to use it for hunting. He had bought 30-06 ammunition just right out of the gun store, local gun shop, and he couldn't hit the broadside of a barn because the ball was so shot through that the bullet was barely making contact with the rifling. Damn. So when it comes to military surplus, you really have to look into it because a lot of those, some of the rifles are treated very well. I mean, that trapdoor Springfield I have, it's over 100 years old, and uh, it shoots true. I mean, the first shot I fired out of it, with my own uh, hand-loaded black powder round. Uh, now, granted, the, I was shooting at 50 yards, and the gun is sighted in for 100 yards, so it shot about an inch high. But it was dead on. All I had to do was aim a little bit low, and at 50 yards, it went right through the bullseye on the second shot. I got lucky. <laughs> uh, I've, I've tend to realize American rifles are usually, for the most part, taken care of pretty good. Um, I have an old Craig Jorgensen that it's amazing. It's the smoothest rifle I've ever owned and it's American and uh, I can't have any more praise. Um, most American rifles are taken care of pretty good. Um, second most is like German rifles and that's very niche to which one because, you know, Germany lost two wars. Their rifles got scattered everywhere to all the cavemen of Eastern Europe. Um, but yeah, Millsips is a risky business. Unless you know everything about it, I wouldn't suggest buying one. I'd suggest sticking to a civilian one. Because to be honest, I mean, the only thing a Millsab has on a regular rifle is the ability to attach a bayonet. Unless you're going to go run around bayoneting bears and cryptids, you're not going to need one. You don't need to be running around with a sword bayonet chasing deer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I would recommend, uh, you know, cheap civilian rifles. Uh, one guy had asked about, uh, a couple of people had asked about calibers. Um, and to be honest, everybody. Anything from 22 caliber on up will kill a your average deer in America. Most people when they're hunting are going to be deer hunting. And uh, 20, 22 caliber and up will usually kill deer. I mean, I've seen guys kill them in my local area with, like, the smallest caliber I've seen a guy use was, like, 22, 250. He killed them. There was no no uh, wounding on the, you know, wounding the animal and suffering. It was clean. Um when it comes to small calibers for a small game, 22 long rifles have been around since the 1850, or um, 22 in general is around since the 1850s. 22 long rifles have been around since like, the early 1900s. It's cheap. You can buy plenty of it. It's rimfire. The guns are cheap. You can you can use it to you know show your children how to fire and handle a weapon. It's good for a small game, but I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't suggest going out there and starting a firearms collection just to go hunting. It's not really cost effective. So, uh, yeah, that's another big thing too, is just being able to give it to your kids and, and let them use it and whatnot. And that's, I was, uh, pondering like another build and I was even considering getting like a nine millimeter, like a PDW style, just because of the fact that they're lighter and 
you know, I, I think that they still have a a place for home defense and everything where people generally breaking into homes are not wearing armor. So you don't really need to worry about it. They're generally short, light, easy to suppress, all that stuff. But you know, one of the biggest things too is just like, okay, once my kids get a little bit older and they could shoot, it's a lot easier for them to to use one of those than to give them my AR with, you know, optic and light and laser and everything else on it. Yeah, and it all comes to like if you're gonna defend your homestead, doubling back on that. Say you have a, a wife. Say the I think the typical American female ranges between five foot four and five foot seven. Um, put it this way: if you have some towering military surplus rifle firing like a thirty to forty caliber round with uh, mock Jesus amount of powder loaded in it, where it breaks your shoulder like a mule kicking you, you got to think about your children. You got to think about your wife. Are they going to be able to fire the same rifle you can? I mean, I know for a fact. That if I was give my when I give my wife the Martini Henry to fire, it it rocks her world every single mm-hmm. time. It's not gonna be something you're gonna try and fire over and over again. I mean, it's like a mule kick straight to the shoulder. So you want to think if you're gonna buy one rifle, do it all. Buy the caliber you know you're gonna be able to kill every animal with. Buy the caliber you know your you your wife your children are gonna be able to use. You know it's a lot of planning to be involved and. Uh, I know a lot of. I had a couple questions asking about calibers. I'm not going to go into individual calibers. There's so many of them. There's too many of them. There's plenty of people online who are specifically, you know, they're they're good in that field that you can watch the videos. I'm not going to get into that. There's people asking what brands are good. A rifle is a rifle. Everybody makes the same thing. Um, Some people are quality gun makers. Some people aren't. Some people pay. You're paying for the name. If you buy a Winchester, you're paying for the name compared to a Savage or uh, things like that. I had one person ask me what rifles I use personally on the homestead. Um, My most used rifle is a uh, Savage Model 99. It's it's a lever action with no external hammer. Um, And like I said, once again, niche calibers. Mine is in a caliber called 3855 Winchester. It was popular in the days of Wyatt Earp. It's hmm. no longer popular. So, like I said, niche calibers, don't go for them. I personally load mine. I don't have any issues. Um, I have a Craig Jorgensen. It's in a caliber called 30 Army or 3040 Craig. Once again, very niche. Stopped being popular around the 1970s. Um, I have a British Enfield, 303 British. Still kind of popular, I guess. Um I have a German Mauser, an 8mm Mauser. That's pretty easy to get your hands on these days. I still believe it's pretty easy to get your hands on. Um, I have a 4570 Trapdoor Springfield. Now, granted, you have to load that with black powder, but still, 4570 components are pretty easy to get. 4570 is a pretty saturated market. I think every manufacturer in, in the United States of America makes, if they make a big game rifle, they usually have it in offering a 4570. It's, it's the American bullet. Yeah. That is the most American round out there is 4570 government. I mean, it's pretty common. Um, and then I, I own a uh, Martini Cadet in 357 Magnum. I've got my five-year-old using that. It's a small, lightweight rifle. Um, I have a Martini Henry. Don't recommend buying those. Caliber's been obsolete since the 1920s. I have a 577 Snyder. Caliber for that's been obsolete since before the 1900s. You know, I wouldn't recommend buying those. And I have a couple of, you know, small game rifles, 22s, a couple of uh, 
niche calibers that I bought because, like I said, I reload, and if that's something you want to tackle, it's something you want to tackle. Um, but uh, any any caliber, like I said, 22 and above is going to tackle most big game in North America. I wouldn't suggest shooting a moose or an elk with something that small, but for your, most of your big game, white-tailed deer, black-tailed deer, whatever you have, XSD, whatever you have in your part of the country, 22 to 30 caliber, 40 caliber, they'll, they'll kill it. Um, if you're going to get into waterfowl hunting, shotguns, that's what it is. Most of the time as a homesteader, though, you're not going to be shooting waterfowl. If you don't have a big water pond or waterway to hunt on, you're not going to be doing that typically. So I wouldn't worry about buying too big of a gauge of a shotgun. But, uh, yeah, so it's all up to you. Whatever you're going to be hunting, it's all personal choice. So uh, moving on from the firearms topic, um, <laughs> that's, just a, that's just a rabbit hole. Yeah, it's, and that's just never going to end either. Exactly. I mean, there's so many people who get into fights over what caliber is better, how much powder to put in. You know, it's just, you know, nah, it's too much. Um, then I had uh, teaching your children firearm safety. I mean, that's it's pretty pretty simple to teach firearm safety i mean you don't have to overthink it to teach your children where the safety is teach your children how to properly aim the rifle how to properly hold the rifle teach them never to point a loaded rifle at anybody or anything that they don't intend to kill you know you got to train them the fundamentals do not ever give a child a loaded gun the first time they ever held one give it to them unloaded and teach them everything they need to know to operate it and do it over and over again before you load it for them. You know, you don't want to sit there and uh, give them a loaded gun first time. All right. And it's pretty simple to teach children firearm safety. I know I had a lot of people actually ask that question because they're worried about their children. It's it's pretty easy. I mean, if you don't think you can do it, go online. There's plenty of firearms training courses out there that will teach you how to teach others. Um, it's not that hard. It's, it's really, you don't have to overthink it. It's not hard. Uh, I've had a lot of people comment about how they never used a gun before. You need to know yourself before you try and train someone else. You definitely need to know how to operate a gun before you train someone else and how to do it. Um, that's priority number one. Mm -hmm. You can't be daft and then try and teach somebody else. Um, I had another question about homeschooling children or sending them to public schools. That's I'm not really going to go too far into that. That's kind of a personal thing you and your spouse have to decide. Um, you can't just listen to an Australian guy on the internet and I can't really give you the best things. <laughs> so, you know, it's all up to you. If you believe that your local school district and the curriculum they teach is not something that aligns with you and you can't afford a private school and you think you can homeschool, then go ahead. If you believe that the public schools around you are good enough, it's up to you. It's all up to you. I can't make those decisions for you. So, uh, um, there's only a few more questions and then that's all. Uh, one person had asked um, about, there was another one about uh, livestock. They asked about uh, keeping them warm in the winter. Um, it depends how cold your winters get. Most animals can naturally protect themselves in a winter. Dead, you need to give them a shelter, number one. Don't leave them out in the middle of the open. Give them a shelter. Um, bedding, anything they can use to insulate themselves uh hay you know hay for warming their bellies up straw for giving them bedding for uh, things that aren't birds uh birds usually can keep themselves pretty cool if you want to buy a heating lamp that's a viable option as well um 
but definitely shelter, adequate shelter for anything, even yourself. Think of uh, your animals as kind of an extension of you. Go outside and sit in the middle of the open with no jacket in a cold, windy day and see how long you last, you know. Um, give your animals proper food, proper water, proper shelter, bedding to insulate themselves and food that can, you know, they can eat to increase their body temperature. Um, you know, it's pretty simple to take care of animals. If you can take care of yourself, you can take care of an animal, in my opinion. Um, then I got another question about, uh, ties into just the whole keeping predators at bay. Um, adequate fencing. Um, like I said, chicken coop, bury your wire under the ground. That way if a coyote, fox, any type of animal is going to dig to try and get in, if they dig down deep enough and realize they still can't get in, they're going to give up. They're not going to put it in the energy that they're not going to receive back. Um, if you have some sort of free roaming chicken, uh, I know one person has said they had a chicken run that gave them a free roaming area. Um, putting up uh, a metal bar and then putting PVC piping on it. If a animal tries to jump up and over, it will roll them back off the top of the fence. So uh, say you have a coyote trying to get into your pen and they're able to jump the four or five feet, they're going to hit the PVC bar as they try to stabilize themselves and they're going to fly right back off. So um, that's another way you could go about it. Uh, if you have four-legged animals like goats, pigs, things like that, and you're not keeping them in a fully enclosed building, Tall fencing, that's the best way you can do it is tall fencing. And once again, bury it in the ground. Because uh, if there's a pack of coyotes and they want your goat bad enough, they'll dig. If they're hungry enough and desperate enough, they'll dig. So bury the wire, build it tall, and uh, you'll never have a problem, you know. How, how far generally it's, do you recommend that you go with that? Like another I usually go about three feet in the ground, three to four feet. Usually any animal gives up over to a foot and a half to two feet. They won't dig anymore. They realize it's futile. Yeah. Um, so I usually go about three to four feet deep and roll it and then bury it. So you want to roll it three to four feet down and then begin to roll it underneath of the, say you have a chicken coop with a run and you're wiring off the run. You want to put it down three to four feet and then roll it under and bury it. That way, even if they dig straight down, they still have to dig further under, which they're going to give up digging down anyway but if they were to get to that bottom point they still have to dig further and they're just going to give up um same thing goes with any wiring you know dig it dig it deep bury it build it up tall you'll never have an issue and if you want to like i said put the metal pipe over the top and then or metal bar and then put pvc pipe on it and it'll basically since pvc pipe is going to be larger diameter than the metal bar as soon as they hit it they're going to roll back off and once they hit the ground hard enough a few times, they're going to learn their lesson and just kind of piss off. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it um, predator defense isn't that hard. Um, you just got to know what predators you have. Bears, uh, the biggest nuisance I have, they will just tear through wire. I mean, you could put as enough wire as you want; they'll tear right through it. Um, if a if a you know black bear in my area. They have enough force to where if they want to get in, they're going to get in. So you just have to do your best to mitigate them throughout the day and night uh, physically with a rifle or scaring them away. Fencing's not going to do it. They'll tear right through it. Uh, bears, they're beasts. They will just use their physical body mass to tear through anything. So you have to physically meet that problem, in my opinion. Um, someone had asked about the ease of cleaning a chicken coop maintaining the chicken coop 
Um, they do take a lot of maintenance. They poop a lot. <laughs> uh, they live in their filth. We, we had a local guy. No lie. He asked me to help him clean his coop. He had a chicken that had a ball of poop on its foot that had solidified around its claws. And it, it looked like he had a ball for a foot because so much had solidified because he had, they were living in such squalor. Um, and it'll walk with a limp because it couldn't put the foot down all the way on the ground. So you need to clean it. Um, there are many ways you can do it. You could have it to where part of your chicken uh, run opens up and you can get a wheelbarrow in there. You can put a door, uh, all kinds of things. Um, they asked about uh, how to harvest eggs. If you wanted to, when you put in your uh, in your coop, when you put your laying boxes for the chickens to lay the eggs in and to sleep in, if you put a, like a hatch on the back of the outside wall so you could open it up and then reach it and grab the egg, close it, and put a pin to lock it, you could do that. That's, that's what I have. So all I have to do is just open I don't have to go inside the coop. I can just open up the little hatch on the back of the wall, reach in, grab it, and close it back up again. Oh, nice. So, I mean, it's, it's all about ease. Whatever makes your life easier, you know? But, uh... I've seen some of the guys local have chicken coops with a run so large they can actually put a tractor bucket in and scoop everything in the tractor bucket and back the tractor away from it. So it's it's whatever is in your means and whatever you think is best. But I do believe that making it easily accessible for your height makes it a whole lot easier to uh, go in there and um, remove excrement because chickens poop a lot. I mean, you if you let it go, they'll actually build the ground up higher because they poop so much. The ground will actually raise up higher than the outside ground level outside the coop. <laughs> it, it, I've seen some local local guys who have asked me to help them clean it out, where they let it go go you know a couple of years over from cleaning. One guy did not clean for three years, and it looked like where you could see where they had dug. So chickens, when they go out in the coop, they like to dig a little bit and lay in it. So they've dug through and look at their little trench network where they had actually dug areas to lay in versus the poop around them that was <laughs> steadily going up. You know, yeah, it's. It, it's all about maintenance, you know, maintaining anything. You know, you don't want your animals living in squalor. I mean, uh, even goats, goats, pigs, whatever you have that live in a shelter, you have to take the old straw out. You know, they're all, they're, they're, they're animals, so they don't care. Even though they're domesticated, yeah. they'll shit just right where they sleep, they don't care. So you got to clean that out. I mean, we had one guy, goat house, he had built, and we were using pitchforks to try and break the base layer because so much straw, because he used to just throw straw on top of the old straw. Yeah. So it would get compacted. So if you mix the old straw that was rotting away with the, the shit and all that, it actually formed a solid layer on top of the subfloor of the shelter. And we had to use pitchforks to scrape it out. And like, they looked like you're pulling up linoleum. Jeez. It was that, it was like tile floor coming up. It was that bad. So don't treat your animals terribly. Treat them well. Maintain them. You'll do fine. Just don't let them live in squalor. It's the worst thing you can do. They can get sick easily. It's the worst thing you can do. Yeah, it's like kids. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if you're not going to treat your child that way, you're not going to treat an animal that way, don't treat an animal that way. Um, I heard somebody ask about breeds of animals. Um, breeds of animals, it, it only depends. Uh, personally, for goats, I recommend the boar goat. They're basically known to be immune to most animal diseases. Um, I've had them live 20 years back in Tasmania. We had them live 20, and we had one that lived to 27 years old before it died. Uh, same thing with donkeys and mules. They live incredibly long lifespans. Uh, chickens, you know, whatever breed works best for you in your local area. Um, 
I can't really recommend one breed over another. To me, they're all the same. It's only when you start getting the full-legged animals that they, uh, you know, chickens, sit different breeds, they can lay different colored eggs. That's about all chickens can really do. A chicken's a chicken, in my opinion. Yeah. But uh, goats, you know, there's different breeds of goats. Um, you know, it all depends on your climate. Some goats have thicker, shaggier hair. Some have uh, short coats. It all depends on your environment. I wouldn't personally buy a shaggy-coated animal and put them in the El Paso, Texas, and I wouldn't buy a thin-coated animal and put them up in Alberta, Canada. So, you know, it all depends on your local uh, geography, your climate. It's going to determine what you're going to need. Another question was about producing dairy and uh, meat and eggs. It's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, if you want a dairy goat or dairy cow, you buy one, you milk it. It's not that hard to milk it. It's pretty easy. It's kind of self-explanatory. There's udders. You grab the udders. You gently squeeze and pull down. Milk comes out. You fill a bucket up. You move on to the next one. It's pretty It's pretty simple, guys. It's not that hard. Collecting eggs, same way. Chickens naturally lay them out of their clutch. Multiple ones a day. You go in there. You grab them. You put them in a basket, and you store them. Tips with eggs, guys. Uh, if you don't clean them and put them in the refrigerator, they last a lot longer than if you've cleaned them. And if you don't clean them and store them on like your countertop or your table, they last a lot longer than if you clean them. Uncleaned eggs, they tend to last longer because when you clean them, you take the put this way, you take the seal off, so you let bacteria get in. So if you don't clean your eggs, you leave them dirty. They uh, last a lot longer. Just put it out there. If no one ever knew that. Don't clean the eggs. They last a lot longer. Uh, and once again, meat. If you're going to sit there and butcher your own animals, it's up to you. Personally, in my opinion, if you're a homesteader, you should supplement your game, your food, by hunting wild game and not just butchering your own stock. Because if you're not bre- actively breeding your animals, eventually you're going to run low on livestock. So I'm telling you right now, breeding isn't exactly the easiest thing. I've had livestock die during you know, giving birth. It's not exactly the... Cutting most cut and dry thing in the world. Even humans can die while giving birth. It's not exactly rare. So uh, keep that in mind when you want to butcher your own livestock. If you butcher too much of it, then you won't have enough to provide you with the other basic needs. So uh, just putting it out there for you guys. Don't think that uh, you know if you just put a mama goat and a papa goat together, no one's going to pop they'll out. Figure it out. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I've had I've had plenty of animals die during childbirth it, you know it is what it is yeah. you know it's you know life sucks i mean but uh, you can't just go around butchering all your livestock it's just it's not viable without supplementing some more other source of uh food but uh yeah i think that just that wraps it up for me i think that's pretty much every question answered i'm not going to answer any of the uh batshit crazy ones <laughs> uh and then there was a lot of questions that were just repetitive where I think the same person was just switching account names and asking the same one. I mean, there was people who had the exact same, I mean, word for word, exact same question on like five or six different uh, usernames. So I think it was just someone making multiple accounts and just messaging the same question, I think. That's funny. So I hope everybody's had their questions answered this time around. And uh, if you didn't, if you have new questions to ask, you can always ask them. But uh I think for the most part, I think we got them all this time. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the only thing I'll add to um, when you're talking about like animal breeds and picking the one that works for your area, 
Um, learn which garden zone you're in because that's going to help you determine animals and like which crops are are best suited for your area and then it can also indicate like when you should start fertilizing uh your your gardens and stuff um like which phase of fertilization to use at least like i know that that's how it is with grass i'm sure it's similar with with plants oh yeah um, and even the ph level of your soil is something you need to look out for too yeah yeah that and like different different types of forest too that you live in um, will change your pH level. Like if you live in an area with like, or you have like a lot of coniferous trees versus deciduous and whatnot is going to help indicate like what your soil acidity level is. But if you know your garden zone, um, then it's just a simple, like, you know, which goat is best for zone five. Like, I'm sure that there's other people that have asked that and, and it helps to give a more, um, more direct answer than like trying to figure out what what animals are going to be good if you have cold winters and you know all that stuff so yeah learn learn your garden zone it'll help out quite a bit yeah and i mean even the size of an animal too if you, if you can feed a larger animal don't buy the largest one of the breed you know don't buy the goliath when you can buy the david of the breed yeah you know go first if you can't provide them enough food buy the smaller animal definitely you know definitely um is there a way that people can can reach out to you uh i don't have any social media platforms so i guess the best way is to go through uh murph and he'll just send it all to me or if they contact you you can send it to me uh but like i said i don't have any social media so uh it's one thing i don't have so if people wanted to get come message me i guess they could send it to uh send it your way or they could send it to uh murph and i guess he could send it to me same as what we've been doing for the past couple of uh, go arounds. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'll put uh, Murph's. Um, I'll ask him, but if he's cool with it, I'll put his uh, Instagram in the description as well for people to message him on. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I'd be fine with it. Sweet. Well, once again, right. I appreciate you coming back on. Hey, no problem. Anytime. Sweet. I'm just glad people are interested in it. Oh yeah, like this is anytime that I ask about what topics people want to hear. There's always quite a few people that that suggest bringing you back on or other homesteaders, and so maybe um, maybe we, what we can do is is plan something with with you, and then a couple other people that do homesteading stuff, and you guys could just go through things and tell funny stories or weird stories or bounce ideas off. Yeah, it'd be nice. Get a, like a big uh, homesteading thing in the back. Going yeah, exactly. And I'm just going to sit in the back and not say anything because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, to sit the sideline, just jump in when there's something you know about. Exactly. All eagerly. <laughs> well, you're just sitting there taking notes shorthand. Yeah. Yeah. All just like squiggly, squiggly cursive. But no, I, uh, I do appreciate you coming back on, man. So thanks again. Hey, anytime, man.